Welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I am Bo, just one of the hosts of this show. Along with my pal, Chad, we have come up with a prize-adjacent recipe for a podcast we think you'll find delicious and nutritious. First, we whip up an introduction that gives you a little backstory on the movie we're discussing, and a tale designed to tickle your cinematic taste buds. Next, we add a heapin' helpin' of discussion, in which we cover the movies in question scene by terrible scene, and only then can we make this concoction an audio morsel called Pick 6 Movies. Better yet, each season, we select six of these movies around a specific flavor profile, and we have a doozy of a buffet for this season, season number 22 if you're counting. We call this one Deja Yu. And we are serving up six remakes of classic horror movies that turned out to be not-so-classic when they were reheated and served up to a new generation of viewers. But enough kitchen puns, it's time to crank this episode up to 350 and get the water boiling. Thanks for dropping by, now tuck that napkin in your collar and get out your knives for this head-scratching, tummy-tickling remake, Friday the 13th. Take it away, Chad. All right, let me get my headphones on. All right, let's do this thing. Hey, Garrett the Intern, intern for the spooky horror movie season. Garrett, I heard you were brought in because you, you're a big horror movie guy. Is that true, Garrett? How much do you love horror movies, Garrett? A lot. On a scale of I watch them often to I go to horror conventions, where do you rank, Garrett? <laughs> so you're a weirdo then when you're at a horror convention do you ever stand in line to meet those has-beens and get their autographs you got back from los angeles yesterday what was the name of the convention you went to HorrorCon los angeles who's the most famous person that you waited in line to give them your hard-earned money for an autograph or a photo yeah garrett i don't know i don't know who that is Strike two, Garrett. Don't know who that is. Yeah, I don't know the actors you're talking about, and I, I'm not even sure that I recognize the movies that you're referencing. Oh, Tom Arnold was there. I know him. I know him. I know Eric Roberts. Nice. Did you wear a costume? <laughs> no, I don't want to see your pictures, but I do know somebody who would love to see all of your pretend monster movie dress-up photos, and that's Bo. He is way more into horror movies than I am, and he is also much more accepting of these types of life choices, Garrett. Garrett, what's your favorite horror movie? Do you think that I've actually seen the South Korean horror film from 2007 called The Butcher? Garrett, you can scratch the word probably from that response of probably not. And while you're at it, lose the T and not. And let's just call it an even no. <laughs> What's your least favorite horror movie, Garrett? Mm -hmm, how about that one? <laughs> Every movie made by you, Bolt. Seriously, you need to hang out with Bo for the weekend. You two would get along great. Garrett, what's your favorite color? What's your least favorite color? My least favorite color is mauve. Because I don't think I know what the color mauve is, and it makes me feel weird saying it. What's your favorite number, Garrett? Mine's 27. What's your least favorite number, Garrett? Is that because the number four is unlucky in some eastern countries, Garrett? I knew that, Garrett, because I've met people like you before, Garrett. <laughs> you know what my least favorite number is, Garrett? It's 13. No, it's not really 13. I don't have a least favorite number, Garrett, but I'm not surprised that you do, because you're a weirdo, Garrett. <laughs> I 
I said 13 as a segue into the intro of this episode of Pick 6 Movies. So Garrett, give me some creepy music, and we're going to dive deep into the nonsense of how one of the best days of the week, Friday, fell in with the likes of the maligned prime number 13. Do you believe in superstitions? Walking under a ladder, bad idea for you? You freak out when you break a mirror or you cross paths with a black cat? Well, congratulations, you're a part of a collection of people who are ding-dongs and, in my opinion, need to get it all together. Now, clearly, I have a low tolerance for this kind of wackadoo jibber-jabber. Numerology, astrology, phrenology, cryptozoology. You can take all of that put it back on the shelf because, no, we're not leaving the store with a sack full of crazy talk. Back in the olden times, people used to associate numbers with all kinds of things. For example, lunkheads that didn't understand how gravity works or how viruses spread used to associate the number 12 with a sense of completion. The 12 days of Christmas, 12 months in a year, the 12 signs of the zodiac, the 12 labors of Hercules, 12 donuts in a box, unless you go to one of those really good bakers where they give you one for free. That's awesome. But wait, if you add one more donut to the box, and that's 13 donuts, and by doing that, you really cocked things up in the universe of stupid shit people believe. Researchers estimate that 10% of the U.S. population have a fear of the number 13. For what it's worth, NPR reported that 20% of Americans believe in QAnon conspiracy theories. And my guess is that the 10% that believes that the number 13 is bad luck falls right in the middle of that 20% that believes in all of this QAnon nonsense, thus creating a Venn diagram that looks like one of the aforementioned donuts as a representation of people who are... What's the word that I'm looking for? Oh right, morons. The fear of the number 13 is specific to Western cultures, so much so that many high-rise buildings don't have a 13th floor, just go straight from 12 to 14. Many hospitals and airports avoid using the number 13 as to not spook simpletons and the mentally ill individuals who get freaked out by seeing the number one hanging out with the number three. So why does the number 13 get such a bad rap? Because you know what? I loves me a free donut. Thank you, Mr. Wong from Wong's Donut Shop and his magic donut special, Keep em Coming. And more specifically, why is Friday the 13th a day associated with bad luck? Reportedly, the unlucky nature of the number 13 started with Norse mythology. There was this group of gods that were hanging out and having dinner. Didn't include the god they talk about in the Holy Bible. These are the gods that people don't believe in anymore. Well, these 12 gods are hanging out and they're having dinner. And guess who crashes the party? Trickster god Loki. Now, not the one from the Avengers. Well, not that one exactly. You know, for the sake of the story, sure, it's Tom Hiddleston as Loki crash in this party of the gods and in this scenario loki ends up tricking one of the gods into killing another one of the gods and the number 13 heads down the path of becoming an unlucky number now you may be thinking really that's what started this number 13 nonsense well that's where it started but like a lot of crazy things that people believe this also ties back to the bible the holy bible the one i was talking about earlier the one with the jesus in the second half of it in that version of the bible the last supper was attended by you guessed it 13 people and judas he was the real shitheel of that bunch so when you have 13 people at dinner that is a sign of bad things to come garrett you ever been to a dinner with 13 people yeah, I don't think I've been to a dinner with more than 10 people. That all sounds exhausting to me. In the Holy Bible, Jesus was crucified on a Friday. And that's not the only reason that Fridays are to Christians what Mondays are to Garfields. Friday is said to be the day that Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge, thus getting them kicked ass first out of paradise and into the real world. 
It's also supposedly the day that Cain killed Abel, the day the Temple of Solomon was toppled, and the day that Noah's Ark was launched, filled with two of every animal on Earth, which, according to Ken Ham, creator of the Creation Museum in Kentucky, the Ark also had dinosaurs on it. A Jurassic Ark, if you will. A movie that I'm shocked does not exist on Sci-Fi Plus streaming service. So we've established that 13 is an unlucky number in Western cultures, and we've laid out a pretty compelling case for why Fridays are bad news. But when you put these two things together, well, Katie bar the door, we got big trouble a-coming. The earliest recognition of Friday the 13th as an unlucky date goes back to a French play titled Les Fenestres Boulis that cites Friday the 13th as the source of a character's misery. But we need more here, people. That's not enough to make Friday the 13th such a bad day. Well, a stock trader and shady businessman, T.W. Lawson, published a novel in 1907 titled Friday the 13th that contributed to the perception of this day and date as being unlucky. In the book, an unscrupulous stockbroker, wonder who that was based on, takes advantage of people who believe in superstitions that surround Friday the 13th to create a panic on Wall Street on this ill-fated day, and the stockbroker ends up making a killing? <laughs> I'll droll. And this lays the groundwork in popular culture that Friday the 13th has a little stank on it and is considered to be, when compared to all other day and date combinations, less lucky than others. There are claims that hundreds of the Knights Templar were arrested on Friday the 13th in October of 1307, but that claim is attributed to Dan Brown's 2003 novel The Da Vinci Code, which is pumped full of crazy shit, so that's not too reliable of a source. But the rocket fuel that launched Friday the 13th to its iconic status came from a very unlikely place, a movie that had really nothing to do with Friday the 13th, but was set on the date most associated with frights and scares, October 31st. In 1978, John Carpenter released what many, myself included, to be the greatest slasher horror movie of all time, Halloween. And when movies like this make so much money at the box office, other studios and filmmakers want to replicate the success of other popular film genres. Audiences were ready for gore and gruesome on-screen murders in the 1970s and the 1980s. And among these filmmakers that were looking to rip off the success of other people was Sean Cunningham. Cunningham was an American filmmaker who graduated from Stanford with a Master's of Fine Arts, and he started his career managing theater companies, and he eventually started making documentary films. He made an educational film titled The Art of Marriage, a movie that, quote, seeks to examine the basic causes of marital incompatibility and shows explicit sexual techniques to help couples overcome inhibitions and lack of sexual knowledge. So it was softcore porn dressed up as an instructional how-to movie. That movie was made for $3,500 in 1969 with three crew members. And because porno was shown in real movie theaters at this time, the movie ended up making $100,000. Thanks, shame-filled dad sneaking into movie theaters wearing hats, sunglasses, and long raincoats. You're the real heroes of this story. With the success of this movie, Cunningham wanted to make another porno, I mean educational film. This movie was called Together, and it was essentially a remake of The Art of Marriage. And during production of this movie, Cunningham hired a young man eager to make his mark in the film business. His name was Wes Craven. Maybe you uh, heard of him? 
Well, if not, Wes Craven would go on to bring Unto the World Nightmare on Elm Street and its iconic Dreamtime Boogeyman Freddy Krueger, but we will discuss him more later this season. Wes Craven helped with synchronizing the dailies of the film footage over the few days that the documentary Together was shot. This movie comes out and the public said, pornography? Pretending to be legitimate film fare? Yes, please. And adult actress Marilyn Chambers appears with a handsome black man where she runs a flower along his penis, all in the name of artistic expression? Hmm, I certainly will have an extra helping of that. Thank you. <laughs> so Together comes out in 1971, and the movie is a hit because people like watching other people have sex on film. And based on that, the backers of that movie said, Cutting up, Griffin, I don't know how you define pornography, but I know it when I see it and I like it when I see it. Look, here's a blank check with my name shined in the bottom line. Take as much money as you want and go make another movie that's full of sex and other emotionally provocative images. <laughs> you know what I like. So Cunningham steps into the producer role and Wes Craven slides into the director's chair to helm a movie that he wrote titled Last House on the Left. This was a movie that had sex in it, but not the kind of sex that was in Together. <laughs> oh no sir, Last House on the Left was a graphic horror exploitation film about a 17 year old hippie girl who's abducted, raped, and tortured, and murdered all on her 17th birthday. To exact revenge, the mom and dad hatch a plan where the mother of the slain daughter seduces one of her killers and bites off his penis and she swallows it, while the dad kills the other killers with a shotgun and a chainsaw. Garrett, have you ever seen this movie? Garrett, why would you watch something like that multiple times? Garrett, remind me to never let you in my house, ever. Thank you, Garrett. So Last House on the Left was released in 1972 and it cost $90,000 to make and it pulled in 3 million bucks at the box office. And so it was that movie going audiences slowly began to show increasing interest in cinema that depicted horrific acts of violence. Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney movie monsters, these were not. At this time, The Exorcist was scaring the hell out of all manner of people that are frightened by the devil in 1973. The next year, Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released in 1974, upping the ante of crazy horror movies for people to enjoy at a local theater. Steven Spielberg showed how to make a mass market box office blockbuster scary movie with Jaws in 1975. A year later in 1976, Brian De Palma's adaptation of Stephen King's novel Carrie starring Sissy Spacek arrived with critical and audience acclaim. That same year, Richard Donner directed Gregory Peck in The Omen. A year later in 1977, The Exorcist II, The Heretic, was released as filmmakers capitalized on the success of the previously noted horror films. Following that trend, Jaws 2 reminded people that sharks still like to eat people in the ocean in 1978. And it was in that same year that John Carpenter presented unto the world his All Hallows Eve masterpiece, Halloween a movie that reportedly cost about $300,000 to make and raked in 47 million bucks in the US alone and topped out at $70 million worldwide. This surpassed the financial success of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and solidified that audiences were down to see movies with gruesome deaths in darkened theaters from coast to coast. Now, Sean Cunningham, remember him? He's still making movies during this time. No surprise, his third outing as a director featured a film with sex in it, but it also had a dash of horror. 
1974, he directed a film titled Case of the Full Moon Murders. It's about a voyeur vampire named Emma who can turn into a bat, and she enjoys the smiling faces of her victims after going down on them during a full moon. Did I mention this was a comedy? And they made a hardcore and softcore version of this movie. Of course they did. And this movie did not do too terribly well. Then in 1976, lovable curmudgeon Walter Matthau played a drunken bail bondsman who pulls a ragtag group of kids together to lose their championship game in the Bad News Bears. It was like Rocky, but with kids and a lot more profanity and racism. However, it was a huge success. Cunningham saw this and decided to rip it off in a movie titled Here Come the Tigers, and that movie flopped. Cunningham then decided to direct a different Bad News Bears knockoff titled Manny's Orphans. This movie was about soccer, not baseball, and it was set in an orphanage for wayward boys, the coach has gambling debts, the star player is a girl, and nobody saw it because nobody cared. Cunningham was looking for the next big genre of films that he could embrace to make a hit movie, and after seeing John Carpenter's Halloween, he knew this was it. First, Cunningham needed a title. Why start with story, characters, plot, an original idea, or screenplay? You just need a title. Halloween was a good title. That's a scary day, all right. What other day is a scary day? Hey, Friday the 13th. <laughs> but Cunningham needed financial backing to make this movie, and he'd figure all that other stuff out, well, a little bit later. So we got a movie title, check. Financial backing, we need a check from somebody to help make this movie. Then Cunningham has the bright idea to place an ad in Variety, the film industry trade newspaper, with the title of the movie, Friday the 13th, in somewhat 3D block letters crashing through broken glass. And above the title it reads, from the producers of Last House on the Left, the most terrifying film ever made. And at the bottom, it noted Cunningham as the producer and director with a separate notation saying, currently in production, available November 1979. Now, there was no crew, there were no actors, and not one frame of this film was shot. This was all just to see if anybody wanted to fork over some cash to be part of this epic fright fest. And also, Cunningham wasn't sure if anybody had the legal rights to use the title Friday the 13th. And this would hopefully help to vet his usage of the unlucky day and date combo. Nobody called complaining about the use of the title, but people did call wanting to back it financially. Victor Miller, who would later find success writing on TV soap operas, including Guiding Light and One Life to Live, he wrote the original screenplay. Miller said that he was delighted to create a serial killer who was a mother motivated by the love of her child. Or maybe he just watched Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and flipped the mother and son roles. Considering how they botched those dollar store Bad News Bears knockoffs, this does not seem beyond consideration in my opinion. The movie is essentially a mystery, keeping the audience guessing as to the identity of the killer until the end of the film. In the movie Friday the 13th, a boy named Jason Voorhees in 1958 drowns while counselors at Camp Crystal Lake having sex, ignoring this kid who can't swim. This is, after all, a Sean Cunningham production. We're gonna have some sex in there, right, people? The aforementioned mother, Pamela Voorhees, is the killer. Oops, spoilers on Friday the 13th. And she's out seeking vengeance 20 years later when the camp reopens. Horror movie makeup maestro Tom Savini was brought in for all of the practical gory effects, and it was Savini's idea to tack on the final scene of the movie where Jason, as a boy, pops out of a lake 
to attack a girl lying in a canoe. Savini said that he was inspired by the jump scare at the end of Carrie when he said, hey, we should do something like this in this movie. And everybody said, okay, sure, why not? The movie features a bunch of unknown actors, including now-known actor Kevin Bacon, who at the time had had some small roles in a handful of movies, including National Lampoon's Animal House. The movie was picked up by Paramount Pictures for distribution, the first independent slasher film to ever be picked up by a major studio. The top brass at Paramount thought, bah, 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 bah. Look at these teenagers getting killed off one by one. That's what people want to see. Blood and guts and can you sneak in a nipple here and there? <laughs> you know what I like. And I smell box office bonanza. Go make me some money, boys. Paramount put a half a million dollars in for marketing, and they doubled that after the film was released and started performing well. The movie hit theaters in May of 1980 and pulled in close to $6 million on its opening weekend. It was the 18th highest grossing film of 1980, and of the 17 movies distributed by Paramount of that year, and only the comedy film Airplane surpassed the profits of Friday the 13th. Reviews were harsh, citing its low production quality and noted how the movie copies everything from other films except for their quality. <laughs> Ouch. One critic said it was blatant exploitation of the lowest order. Pick Six Movies' second favorite movie critic, Gene, yes, I'll have Pepsi if you don't have Coke, Siskel, said of the movie's creator, Sean Cunningham, that he was, quote, one of the most despicable creatures ever to infest the movie business. <laughs> and Siskel went so far as to publish the address of the chairman of the board of the company that owned Paramount Studios, encouraging people to write and express their contempt for this movie. That's how you got canceled old school. There were some kind words for the movie's musical score by Harry Manfredini, so you know, that's good. And the success of Friday the 13th, along with the success of the film Halloween, solidified the slasher genre of horror movies. And a flood of films hit theaters where a bunch of young people run away from a murdering nightmare stalker who usually would wear a mask of some sort to hide their identity. And among this glut of copycat films were seven Friday the 13th sequels that came out between 1981 and 1989. That is insane. Originally, producers wanted the series not to have continuity, but rather a separate scary movie for each release, where filmmakers could deliver a variety of horror movies under the title Friday the 13th. But the top brass said, I want to know more about that little troll boy who popped out of the lake at the end. Where is he? Is he in the woods? Is it safe for me to walk my dog at night? Is it safe for me to swim in the lake? Is he going to get me? Bring back Jason Voorhees. I want to see what's going on with that little weird goblin. And so it was that Friday the 13th Part 2 came out less than one year after the original movie hit theaters. The sequel was released in May of 1981, and it picked up two months after the first movie ends. But then it flashes forward five years when a school for camp counselors opens on Crystal Lake. Young adults get picked off one by one, and the big reveal is a reverse reverse psycho where Jason Voorhees, who did not die, is all grown up and he has his rotten mother's decapitated head from the first movie sitting on a tiny little altar. Part three picks up right after part two, but this film was released in 3D and came out in August of 1982. The movie had a budget of two million bucks and pulled in $37 million. And it was the movie that knocked E.T. from the number one spot at box offices that summer. Now keep in mind, E.T. had been in theaters for two months prior to this movie's release, but still, that's pretty good. 
and it was the third installment where Jason finally put on his famous hockey mask. Look, you find a look that works for you and you stick with it. Part four of the series, titled Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter, came out in the spring of 1984, featuring a young Crispin Glover and an even younger Corey Feldman. And as the title implies, it was to be the last in the series. And Pick 6 Movies' number one choice to review any and all movies, Roger Ebert, called the movie, quote, an immoral and reprehensible piece of trash. <laughs> Now, this movie did introduce the character of Tommy Jarvis as played by Corey Feldman. And I only mention this because Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning, came out 11 months later in March 1985. This movie brings Tommy Jarvis from Part 4 along for the ride where he heads to a mental hospital. Reportedly, the movie was cast under a fake title, Repetition and many of the actors didn't know they were going to be in a Friday the 13th sequel until they were ultimately cast. Talk about some good news, bad news. Now in this movie, Jason Voorhees is not the killer. It is some copycat killer. Oops, spoilers. Despite that, it was still the number one movie at the box office when it opened. In 1986, Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, also features Tommy Jarvis, who at the beginning of the movie digs up Jason Voorhees' corpse, stabs it with a metal fence post, lightning strikes, and Jason comes back to life with superhuman strength. Uh-oh. This movie ends with Jason at the bottom of Crystal Lake with a boulder around his neck, anchoring him to the mucky waters below. Reading this is exhausting, Garrett. In 1988, Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood was released where Jason goes head-to-head -head against a carry knockoff in the form of a young girl with telekinetic powers. In 1989, Friday the 13th, Part 8 comes out. Jason takes Manhattan. Here, Jason Voorhees gets electrocuted back to life with underwater cables, and he hitches a ride on a houseboat to New York City. <sighs> this ends with Jason getting a face full of toxic waste in the sewers of New York. Then... Four years passed and filmmakers delivered unto the world Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. Now here they couldn't use the title Friday the 13th because of all sorts of legal battles. And the Friday the 13th franchise is fraught with legal battles. I invite you to go down that rabbit hole on your own time. It is a litigious mess. Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday, marked the return of Sean Cunningham to the franchise after his involvement with the very first movie. Cunningham was not affiliated with any of the other Friday the 13th sequels, see the aforementioned lawsuit gumbo that is this movie's legacy. The release of Jason Goes to Hell was helmed by New Line Cinema that took over the distribution of the film wherein the spirit of Jason Voorhees possesses people to continue killing others. In this movie, Jason's spirit can be permanently killed if one of his surviving relatives uses a magical dagger to kill him. What in the hell? Ugh. At the end of this movie, Jason's spirit gets killed and we see a hockey mask lying on the ground and a gloved hand with blades on it reaches out, grabs the mask and pulls it down to hell as we hear the iconic laugh of Freddy Krueger. This was to be a tease of things to come. Would horror weirdos like Garrett the Intern get a matchup of Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees? Well, not yet because of all those legal battles and development nightmares. But in 2002, somebody thought it would be a good idea to send Jason Voorhees into outer space and into the future, the year 2455, in the movie Jason X. Somebody thought wrong, as this movie was a financial flop and disliked by everybody. 
But one year later, movie makers were able to work out their differences and Freddy vs. Jason hit theaters in late summer of 2003. On a budget of $30 million, the movie pulled in over $110 million bucks. There were rumors of bringing Bruce Campbell's character Ash from the Evil Dead series into a sequel to the Friday the 13th Freddy Krueger mashup where the movie would be titled Ash vs. Freddy vs. Jason, but that ultimately never materialized on the big screen, but rather ended up as a comic book adaptation. As the Friday the 13th series had exhausted every contrived plot device they could conceive, there was no more blood to squeeze from this stone. Until six years later and somebody decided to reboot the whole franchise. Platinum Dunes is a film production company that was founded in 2001 by director Michael Bay, Brad Fuller, and Andrew Form. This is the production company behind many of the horror remakes that we will be discussing this season. They were also behind the reboot of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. They were behind The Purge, as well as A Quiet Place and its sequel. They also have some TV productions, including Black Sails and the Jack Ryan series over on Amazon streaming service. But early on, their focus was on remakes of classic horror movies. Among them was 2009's Friday the 13th, based on the success of the Amityville Horror remake discussed in our last episode, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we will be discussing in a future episode. The people over at Platinum Dunes wanted to revive Jason Voorhees' legendary status as a silver screen slasher. To do this, filmmakers wanted the movie to be an origin story to restart the franchise, but eventually they decided to take the first four movies in the canon of Friday the 13th and mash them all into one movie. There were discussions around introducing the character Tommy Jarvis into the reboot, but that idea never materialized. The remake separated itself from the reboots of the Amityville Horror and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in that it was not set in the past. They grabbed Marcus Nispel, who directed the reboot of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to come in and direct the reboot of Friday the 13th. As noted, Friday the 13th would be a contemporary film set in the early 2000s. The team behind Freddy vs. Jason were brought in to write the script, and the writers envisioned Jason's character as a combination of John Rambo, Tarzan, and the abominable snowman from the Looney Tunes cartoons. Well, that all sounds brilliant, fellas. The writers also avoided any complicated backstory to Jason Voorhees as to not solicit too much sympathy from the audience, as viewers of the film should not be rooting for the murdering psychopath who is killing innocent young people. And filmmakers also relied on more digital effects over practical effects when it came to the depiction of people getting murdered. For some, those practical effects of the early franchise were the hallmark of what made the movie so iconic. When you start to digitally fake these fake killings, some felt you kind of lost the movie magic that made the original movies so magical. The movie starred Jason Padalecki, who was known for his role on the show Supernatural that aired on the WB or the CW or some other network that I've never watched. There were a lot of other young actors and actresses in the film that you may recognize from that show or that other thing that you used to watch. The remake of Friday the 13th comes out and it's number one at the box office, bringing in 47 million bucks. But week two, it dropped to sixth place with nine billion bucks and it was all downhill from there. What did the critics and audiences think of the movie? Well, they didn't like it. Noting that it had a lack of scares and suspense and gore or laughs, any of the things that were made famous by the franchise. Film critic Roger Ebert slogged through all of these movies and said of this reboot, quote, it will come as little surprise that Jason still lives in the woods around Crystal Lake and is still sore about the death of his mom. Jason must be sore in general. 
Critics did praise the movie for being better than some of the other horror reboots of the time, including 2008's Prom Night and 2009's My Bloody Valentine 3D. The franchise is currently dormant, stuck in legal battles and lawsuits between Sean Cunningham and the movie's original screenwriter, Victor Miller. It's been 12 years since Jason Voorhees ran around killing people in cineplexes everywhere. And with the current state of film production and the changes ushered in by the streaming services and preferential ways that people watch movies and TV shows at home may also impact the future of the franchise. Do people even want to see another Friday the 13th? Is the slasher genre of filmmaking relevant today? And why is Garrett the intern nodding his head up and down with such force that he may need to see a chiropractor later today? Well, to answer these questions, let's get Mr. Bo Ransdell in here with his head full of horror movie knowledge to sort all of this silliness out. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Voorhees and Vorhers, Pick 6 Movies proudly presents the 2009 remake of Friday the 13th. And welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I'm Chad Cooper, and I am joined, as always, by the man who thinks that every Friday the 13th should be a work holiday, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Bo, how are you doing today? <laughs> oh, boy, that is a sound that brings joy to my heart, Chad. I I'm sure that it does. <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't know this. Here, let let's just start with obscure horror trivia right off the bat. That sound was taken from the actress Betsy Palmer saying kill her the kiki ki, ha 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 well that's fun mm -hmm. <laughs> you know these movies were really a big part of our childhood growing up mm -hmm. it is crazy to me that they released sequels to this movie almost every year after year I mean you had eight movies in nine years that's wild I think the last franchise that really did that was Saw when they had that whole like if it's Halloween it must be Saw Police Academy had a good run <laughs> yeah. they did six movies in six years <laughs> yeah but there was a lot less gratuitous violence in those and much to the the pity you know like it made those movies worse not better for for the lack of violence you don't think tackleberry pulling out those guns pulling out the gun is one thing <laughs> seeing the bullet go through a skull is quite another if there had been a death wish style version of police academy where tackleberry's sister is sexually assaulted and he's got to go to the inner city to kill right. a bunch of minorities then you know maybe i'm on board at that point you know you mentioned the saw series i've only seen the first half of the first saw you know somebody already told me the ending and you know i, I got distracted then i never watched any of the others but one thing i do respect about the saw movies is that they had the decency to name all of their movies saw two saw three saw four like they put the number in order until they got to saw 3d which then they kind of screwed up because right. it bothers me when sequels when they get wonky with their titles and their numbering like first blood and then you had Rambo First Blood 2, but then it was Rambo 3, mm -hmm. and there's no mention of First Blood. But there was never a Rambo 2. Even with the Saw series, that last one that came out with Chris Rock, 
threw that out the window. So that wasn't like Saw 9 or 10 or whichever number they're on now. Mm-hmm. It, they just called it Spiral. Right. And then they're working on a prequel called Scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, I, I'm looking for the uh, present perfect version of uh, <laughs> We'll See is Scene. Dude, I can't follow those Fast and the Furious movies. I have no idea what's going on there. Final Destination. They're another offender. That Halloween franchise is a complete mystery to me. There's alternate timelines. I think there's an animated series from the 1980s that has Casper the Friendly Ghost in it. I have no idea what's going on in the world of Halloween. Here's Bo's rule of horror franchises. Hold on, let me write this one down. One or two of the movies are okay. The rest are gonna suck. (laughs) <laughs> also, a sub-corollary to that is timelines don't matter. Quit whining, you babies. Is that B-A-B-I-E-S or B-A-B-Y-S? Yeah. No, no apostrophe is. But yeah, anyone who is like, well, in, in Halloween 4, there were the Druids and the Cult of Thorn. But in Halloween 6, they don't even mention that. It's like, shut up. These are all movies made to line some producer's pocket. You care, as a fan, (laughs) you care way more about the uh, integrity of the story than anybody making the movie. Right. You know, when when you get to Friday the 13th, The New Blood, Mm -hmm. nobody was like, boy, we're making something special here, guys. (laughs) You know, it was... What are you talking about? You have to Jason to carry yeah what if you have the jason fight the shining or something like that huh there are exceptions to that because like there's a new hellraiser movie coming and by all accounts it's uh, directed by a guy named david bruckner who did a really good horror film recently called the night house and by all accounts between him and clive barker discussing this movie and it could just be hype but both of them are saying like no 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 we really wanted this to be a really good hellraiser movie we'll see how that comes out there is at least lip service being paid to people have been waiting for a good hellraiser movie (laughs) for a long long time and we think we've got it for the most part no (laughs) like all those halloween movies all the nightmare on elm street movies all the friday the 13th movies all the saw movies when you get to six seven eight and nine the only reason they exist and just like you saw with friday the 13th the the franchise we're talking about there was that line that says we will keep making these as long as it makes x amount of money over its budget and as soon as it dips below that line they stop making them i never saw any of the friday the 13th in the theater until i saw jason goes to hell which is crazy because you and i grew up going to see all flavor of terrible movies (laughs) in the theater and it's it's shocking that we never saw or at least that i never saw a friday the 13th on the big screen like all of that was available at blockbuster video or in our case Xanadu video Mm. featuring the finest in home entertainment and rentals with a back room for our more discreet customers looking to rent pornography or camera world when you hear the name camera world you think movie rental i remember renting movies at a texaco gas station that was the time right is that everybody was renting uh at least a handful of, of vhs's but i think i saw jason x in the theater which remains one of my favorites because of how bananas it is i've never seen jason x start to finish i, I oh sir i've got like 20 30 minutes into it one day on sci-fi or something with commercials and again i got distracted but i've never really made my way through it i recommend it i mean of course jason x for the uninitiated is the one where jason is discovered by director david cronenberg (laughs) and 
and is frozen in carbonite and then found and brought aboard a spaceship in the in the future when they put him in the carbonite his mom's there and she says i love you jason i know (laughs) it is so ridiculous but it kind of understands how nonsense its premise is and it gives it license just to have fun and so jason x turns out to be one of the sillier more gory more more entertaining entries in the franchise. I would put it in the top three or four in the franchise just because of how stupid it is. But again, it understands that. Like, the makers of the movie did not think, we're really doing something special here, guys. They understood, like, oh, we've got Jason Voorhees in space, and this is complete and utter bullshit. Right. But there is a way to have fun with that, and the way to have fun with it is to go over the top in every aspect of the movie, where the kills are gory or there's ridiculous nudity for no reason there's an android whose nipples keep falling off it's just batshit <laughs> but it's the kind of batshit that i really love the best of the bunch somewhat unanimously is friday the 13th the final chapter yeah somehow the fourth time around they really were firing on all cylinders the production quality of that one feels a little bit elevated and that's the one where they waited a little bit of time between three and four i think it was a good 18 months <laughs> before that one came out well and it's the Josie factor who we last saw on invasion usa which is another crowd pleaser of an uh-huh. episode as far as i'm concerned so he directed that it has the benefit of being both a weird kind of family drama yeah as well as the teenage slasher and plays all of that real well and it has the most violent jason Voorhees. like he's incredibly aggressive and it's really brutal that's a absolutely my favorite it's a fantastic movie by the time you get to the new blood and Jason takes Manhattan it feels like you're like in those latter Sharknado movies where the filmmakers and the audience are just kind of having a goof like nobody Mm -hmm. is really taking this seriously just because they weren't the first movie of any horror movie franchise that runs this long it doesn't set out to establish this world that's going to later serve as a callback point for a goofy joke or a wink at the audience and for a movie franchise like this and actually franchises we're going to discuss later this season they all kind of veer off into this meta world where the movies are almost somewhat self-aware that they exist as entertainment like i wouldn't have been surprised if in jason takes manhattan if he'd walked past a theater showing friday the 13th a new beginning and just you know hangs his head and just shakes it side to side or or like kills the guy in the ticket booth so that the crowd can just cheer into life. Yeah, like you said, I there exists in horror sort of a rift between everything that came before Scream and everything that came after Scream. Yeah. And Scream is sort of that dividing line between, like, we understand that we are a horror movie and we're going to comment on being a horror movie. And it's really infected a lot of the more popular studio-released horror films moving forward. I think it's getting away from that. Like, you're, you're seeing a swing of the pendulum back to, hey, we're just going to take this more seriously seriously and play this a little straighter there is definitely that self-referential reflex that a lot of filmmakers had in especially with a lot of these remakes i also feel like all of the remakes that we're talking about were of the hey we think we can make a buck ilk as opposed to we think we have a good idea for how to bring these movies back in a way that will appeal to a modern audience one thing that differentiates the movie of our discussion for this episode from our last episode is 
that the Amityville Horror remake was the remake of a single movie. However, the Friday the 13th remake is this mashup of appetizer, main course, and dessert all in one film, you know, with some sorbet palate cleansers tossed in just to help this blended smoothie of yuck and garbage that is the Friday the 13th remake from 2009. It really does feel like the first 10-ish minutes of this movie are sort of a Cliff's Notes of, hey, if you never saw a Friday the 13th movie, here's kind of what happened in the first three. Yeah. The best thing this movie has going for it is its runtime. It says it's an hour 37, but if you shave off those open and closing credits, it's 89 minutes if it holds its breath. That is the best thing you could say about this movie because it is complete and utter garbage. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get into it. Yeah, please. We start off with a combo of the new line and Paramount logos. Then we get the Platinum Dunes logo. We're like, okay, Uh we're good. Then in text we see New Line Cinemas and Paramount Pictures Presents, which, yeah, we know. You just showed us your logos. Then in text over we lay, we get in association with Michael Bay. Hey, Mm -hmm. that's a brand you can trust to bring the cinematic equivalent of a white claw (laughs) to your eyeballs. (laughs) To quote Nightmare on Elm Street 3, it's the bastard child (laughs) of a hundred maniacs. Then we get a text overlay that says a Platinum Dunes production. And like none of this is needed. And then finally our movie starts and we get a date stamp of June 13th, 1980. I'm guessing that's a Friday, Bo. Uh Uh-huh. Which, by the way, they don't mention Friday the 13th at all in this movie. I think it's maybe mentioned once and it's totally dismissed which if you'd never seen any of the friday the 13th movies which i don't know why anyone would watch this who wasn't a fan of the series but if you watch this as a standalone movie good luck none of this is going to make a damn lick of sense yeah it it really is like a what happened wait it feels like we're rushing through a lot of this what so who was she what is she doing it reminds, I like her sweater. It reminds me of when I watch one of those freaky weird Japanese horror movies that you demand I watch. And uh-huh. then I watch it and I'm like, I, like, culturally, I'm like, am I not getting this? And you're like, oh, no, no, Chad, you don't understand. In in their culture, this type of tree is representative of, of sadness and rebirth. I'm like, that still doesn't help me, Bo. I don't understand any of this. And you're like, oh, and the octopus was the dead grandmother killing everybody because of the sins of their past. One of the best encapsulations of that is Cabot in the woods where they cut to the japanese classroom where they have turned the ghost into a frog and are singing around it yep (laughs) and and it's not entirely inaccurate So we get our date stamp. All of this is shot in black and white. We're in the woods and it's sort of raining and it might be night or maybe they're just using one of those filters to make it look like night. And there's this wooden plank sign hanging from two high posts and it's the bare minimum that you could do as a marker for Camp Crystal Lake. It's Mm -hmm. these two pieces of flat rotten wood and the words Camp Crystal Lake are scribbled in what appears to be white shoe polish. It looks terrible, though. It resembles a no girls allowed sign that you'd see outside of a (laughs) makeshift clubhouse built by a bunch of preteen boys in the 1950s. Yeah, our gang uh, typically <laughs> did better craftsmanship. Lightning strikes, and we see a young woman wearing a t-shirt that says Counselor on the back, and she appears to be injured. She's limping through the rainy woods at night, and the movie cuts to the names of the actors appearing in our movie, cutting from what we want to see, the actual movie, to what we don't care about, the opening credits. And I don't know if I've mentioned it or not on this podcast. Quick sidebar. At the beginning of The Great Muppet Caper, Fozzie Bear points out the useless nature of opening credits and he asks kermit (laughs) he says hey kermit does anybody read all these opening credits and kermit the frog 
who I adore, says, well, I'm sure that their friends and family really enjoy reading their names. <laughs> Again, Kermit the Frog, a sage, a vessel of wisdom and insight. Yeah, eh, hard to argue. <laughs> There's a recap of the end of the original first film because you quickly discover that the older woman chasing the counselor is Jason's mom, who is giving her monologue about like, you should have been watching Jason. You let him drown. You should have been watching him. You were fucking insane. Instead of watching my child. And that is why the child drowned. Although apparently that's not what happened. Not at all. Which again, if you'd never seen this movie, you're really going to be confused. This counselor is having none of this. So she just whips out a machete and chops off the head of Pamela Voorhees. And all of this is in black and white and it's not overly graphic. I would also argue, Chad, the beheading in this movie for all its modern effects work and so forth looks like garbage compared to the original beheading which is more gruesome and more effective by a mile i agree i don't think that this movie uses practical effects as much as it should and it turns the camera away a lot of times very quickly or it hides some of the kills in shadow now i'm not a big fan of horror movies in general certainly not like you but if that's what you're coming to see then give the audience that you can either frighten people with jump scares you can have moments of drawn out suspense and tension you can have where you're just shocking people with gore and violence like whatever flavor of horror you're wanting to present to audiences i argue that this movie does none of that it pulls its punches almost to the point to where if you got rid of the boobies and you got rid of some of the really graphic and i'm using that term loosely deaths in this movie it it almost could have been pg-13 it goes back to uh, uh something that i've carried with me for many years which is the robin williams bit from the movie dead again when he talks about whether you're a smoker or not a smoker and he says just decide which you are and be that and this movie does not ever decide what it is and so it ends up being a whole lot of nothing something that i didn't include in the introduction was that the filmmakers wrestled over whether or not this should be an origin story should it be a sequel of part four and ignore the other films and kind of do what modern day halloween movies are doing and it seems like they just teetered back and forth and ultimately landed kind of in the middle of all of those and therefore it's none of those yeah Uh, it it turns out if you don't have a clear vision of what you want your movie to be then the audience isn't going to know what the hell you're doing either (laughs) so her head gets lopped off and the movie shows that there is a locket on the ground, like a necklace attached to uh, a chain. And then this little hobgoblin of a kid scuttles out from the underbrush, right? grabs the necklace, and then he opens the locket. It's still raining, and he sees a photo. On one side is a woman, and on the other side is this kid with a uniquely shaped head. Right, and so this begs the question, Chad. Who? Huh? What? Did Jason not drown? Because it looks like he's fine. It's not like like he crawled out of the muck of the lake as a vengeful spirit he just seemed to be looking from the shadows <laughs> and which implies then that the mother was just crazy yes and that jason was just a mentally challenged kid but was just a kid who clearly did a lot of good work with crafts and archery <laughs> skills and whatnot at well, the camp and then his, watched his mother go bananas on somebody when the first movie came out and it was a mystery of who's the killer and it turns 
out that it's this dipsy doodle, it's the mom exacting murder to avenge her son who drowned while counselors were having sex. And then the movie's wildly successful. So it's like, well, we should make a sequel. And, you know, somebody was like, what if the kid didn't die? Like, hey, right. way to go, RJ. You you had a great idea, guy. That's why we keep you around. <laughs> like you said, that it was kind of, you know, whether it's just brilliance or outright thievery, which is in its own way kind of brilliant, but Savini being like, hey, I saw Carrie and that jump scare at the end was really effective. Let's do that here. And also it happened to set up the franchise to follow. Right. And so what the franchise became is not what the franchise started as. So when you're making a Friday the 13th remake, it's like, well, do you even need to start with the mom and the weirdness that she thought her kid drowned when he didn't? Of course you don't. None of this needs to be in this movie at all. <laughs> it would be smarter to just start with the Jason stuff and do what you do already in this movie, which is around the campfire, yeah. tell the story, and then that's all you need to know. I argue, and we're going to get into a moment, you could either start this movie with our first group of people to be slaughtered, or if you're really smart, you start it with the second group of people who need to be slaughtered. I will say I appreciate the impulse to like, hey, we're going to line up some kids and murder them them and do our cold open that way and get our late title card and and so forth i don't disagree with that impulse but it just spins its wheels way too much for that to be effective i agree and i think where you saw this effectively done recently was in the most current suicide squad film yeah where you set up a group of characters and then you immediately kill them off and it's a head fake but it's done in the span of maybe what seven ten minutes of a mm. two-hour movie in this film, they set up all of these characters and we're with them for a good 30 minutes. And the movie's only 90 minutes long. Then you have to reset all of your stereotypes at the 30 minute mark. And it's like, well, then you got to tell your whole movie in a very abbreviated time period, which surprisingly, they don't do well. <laughs> Stunner. <laughs> they spend a lot of time bullshitting around. So anyway, so Pamela Voorhees is dead. We fade to black. The Hobgoblin kid gets a necklace and off he goes. Then we fade back in and we're at... Crystal Lake and it's present day Bo. That's right. Mm -hmm. Here, the movie introduces us to this first group of characters that I was talking about. Now, I do not remember their names because none of them matter and they're only in this movie to be killed. And amongst them is a brunette woman. There is a redheaded woman whose name is Whitney. She gets a name because she sticks around for uh, a bit. There's Bandana Guy, mm -hmm. his friend Glasses Guy, and there is Long Haired Guy. And Long Haired Guy is the boyfriend of Red head Whitney. Everybody else doesn't really matter. So they're tromping through the woods and it's daytime and they all have these backpacks on that are full of gear that would allow them to camp outdoors and smoke weed and have sex. And long haired guy has an acoustic guitar strapped to his backpack in case anybody wants to hear his cover of Led Zeppelin's Over the Hills and Far Away. Also to let you know who the real asshole of the group is, <laughs> anyone tromping through the woods with a guitar is somebody that you want to avoid. He might as well have a machete. Bandana guy and glasses guy they're having this side conversation how they're looking for this mysterious crop of marijuana that they want to cut down so that they can smoke some weed and sell some weed. And then everybody just decides to make camp and poof, it's nighttime. So Glasses Guy, he jumps out of the bushes and his friends are all there and they're drinking beer and roasting marshmallows as 30-year-olds pretending to be 20-year-olds pretending to be teenagers <laughs> like to do. And this Glasses Guy goes, hey guys, I found some cabins. Who wants to go explore them at night? which nobody does <laughs> right of course not because it's a creepy old cabin at night but he decides like hey, 
I hey, I need to tell you the story of what you saw at the beginning of the movie now. Uh-huh. But the way he tells it isn't that Jason was drowned in the lake because some people were fucking. He says this little kid watched his mother get beheaded. He also says that the kid was deformed or retarded or something. Yeah. Again, if you have zero knowledge of this movie franchise, at this point, we know that a woman, based on this guy's telling the story, killed multiple camp counselors. Mm-hmm. And that she has, to use this guy's words, a retarded son running around the woods <laughs> seeking revenge with a machete in hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the story. And everybody is rightfully like, that sounds like bullshit. Glasses guy throws out, he says, there was this one girl who survived, but she cut the old lady's head off with a machete. It gets weirder. Her son he watched all of this happen and if you don't believe me i don't care if that's how the story goes which i was like none of this is plausible one if that counselor got away and made it back to the real world she doesn't know that this little hobgoblin kid was there he was hiding in the bushes Mm -hmm. who told him this story right there is no reason for anyone to know this and that's why it all sounds like a bunch of crazy make-em-ups the conversation then turns Bo, to whether or not you can drink your own piss god the script for this is so bad (laughs) finally redheaded Whitney tells her boyfriend that it's time to go make out in the woods. No, she says, "Hey, can you can we can you talk a minute? I just like, we need to go chat over here." And you think that's what's going to happen, but then they get off to the side, and she's like, "Um, I'm not going to stay a little time because I don't want to be away from my mom because she's sick with illness." You know what is always best in a Friday the Thirteenth movie? A mother with cancer. Her long-haired boyfriend says, "Hey, babe, your mom was the one who told me to get you away for a few days. You know, let's just have sex in a cramped tent. We'll." drink some warm beer we'll throw up in the woods you'll feel much better after that and she's like you charmer okay there's nothing better than vomiting in the woods to reset your priorities and so the glasses guy is looking at gps he goes oh i'm an idiot we're half a mile away from all this pot behind him though bandana guy's girlfriend i don't think she's his girlfriend the brunette girl just starts taking off her shirt and her bra to reveal what i am betting are very expensive breasts they are not real but they are fantastic and she's rubbing oil on her tits while glasses guy is just yammering on yeah his back is to her so he can't see her exposing herself bandana guy can see the woman taking off her shirt but glasses guy sitting so that he doesn't see all of this oil breast action right and finally bandana guy is like look dude i know you're going on and on about this pot and so forth but i need you to get out of here because the runway lights have been lit i'm bringing in this one in for a landing and so off glasses guy goes once he realizes what's up planning of course to circle back around so he can watch them dude he wanders into the woods with a green glow stick in his hand and earbuds in listening to night rangers sister christian right you're motoring watch your price for flight and finding mr right you'll be all right tonight <laughs> Sister Christian of Yeah, I mean, um, a song most associated these days with big fake dicks and boogie nights. <laughs> I can't think of that song without thinking of boogie nights these days. It is forever. Why does he have a glow stick, Bo? And he has earbuds at night in the woods? I would walk down the street of my neighborhood at night carrying a green glow stick with earbuds in. You might as well just murder yourself. You're just asking to be killed. He stops to take a piss, and as he's pissing, he realizes 
realizes that the plants he urinates upon mm-hmm. is the very weed that he was looking for. Yeah. Oh, wow. I found all the weed. And then he turns around to see our Jason Voorhees of the film yep. with a sack on his head, yep. just rushing at him. Here is the one credit I will give this movie. Okay. Is that the guy playing Jason, Derek Mears, brings a physicality to it that I don't think is wholly appropriate. His action is fine. Some of the, the abilities that they give Jason are borderline superhero, and I have a lot of questions about, like, what does he understand and what does he not understand? Because if he is a, a mentally handicapped child, how does he understand all of the electricity and mechanics that he's doing? I know. But I do like the fact that Derek Mears is taking this seriously and trying to be as physically scary as possible, and he is probably the best thing about the movie. I agree with that. Yeah, so he rushes at him, but we cut away. God, he stabs him in his belly. It's all very unremarkable. You don't get to see nothing. That's fine, because we got to escalate, right? Like, the first death you don't totally see, and then we're going to work our, our, our way up. Theoretically, yes. You, you don't start at the top of the mountain. Yeah. You, you don't start the show with the showstopper. We cut to Redheaded Whitney and her long-haired boyfriend, and they've decided to wander off into the woods to go find something. And they come across what I thought was at first an abandoned cabin from the Camp Crystal Lake summer camp. But then I later thought it was the Voorhees homestead. But then later I'm like, no, wait, this is a cabin. And we'll get into it, but I'm still not sure what they find. And these two go inside this abandoned house slash camp cabin. And the long-haired boyfriend says, where's your sense of adventure? And Redheaded Whitney says, don't go in there. What if some homeless person lives in there? And I'm like, well, Whitney, if a homeless person lived in there, they wouldn't be homeless. Now, would they? (laughs) (laughs) So they investigate the one that's got like an old TV with weed shoved into it as though somebody has created created their own flotsam channel. There's an old piano. There's a bike. Dishes and plates. There's also multiple whistles on strings that a camp counselor would wear around their neck. That's where I was thinking, did like the mom keep these as souvenirs or did Jason keep them? Because the camp shut down after all of that earlier hubbub. <laughs> right, after all the gruesome murders? Sure. <laughs> um, I, good question. You say gruesome murders, I say hubbub. I don't know. You, you would be great for like most <laughs> hotels PR. Um, the guy finds a locket and says very pointedly to redheaded Whitney hey the woman in this locket who is probably the mother of some horrible murderer she looks like you redhead Whitney's like no you should keep it as a plot device for later in the movie Okay. Then they go into what is presumably Jason's room, like his childhood bedroom. Right. Because there's a bed with the name Jason carved into the headboard. And there's toys and, you know, things like that all around. First off, grown Jason would look ridiculous sleeping in this bed with his (laughs) giant feet hanging off the side with all his curled up toenails that have never been trimmed. It's like if I slept in a racing car (laughs) kid's bed or something. The other thing, Chad, is that this room is like littered with accomplishment rooms ribbons to explain jason's behavior later in the movie like there's one for archery there's like trophies for electrical wiring who gave him these these ribbons and where did he earn these Uh, yeah right now here again this is where i was like oh we're in the Voorhees homestead we're not in a camp cabin that was where i pivoted in that direction i'm like okay well we're good to go i also wondered where jason Voorhees got this bed with his name on yeah like does he have a 
ribbon for woodworking and carving? I assume he made it, yes. Maybe he goes antiquing on the weekends. In between selling weed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into all that. This is just so stupid. But all right, let's cut back to our horny couple that are in medias fuck. Yeah, they're doing that thing people do in movies where they talk to each other, telling one another to not have an orgasm so they can orgasm at the same time. Like, I don't know if that's meant to be funny or sexy or awkward or all three plus something else. Do people do that in real life? Bark commands at each other, telling them not to orgasm so they can orgasm at the same time. I'm sure it's happened. That does not seem totally out of the realm of possibility. Oh, not in the world of weird stuff people do in the bedroom. Of course not. But it seems to happen a lot more in the movies than I think it probably does in real life. The brunette woman tells bandana guy to go out and tell glasses guy to quit masturbating while he watches the two of them have sex in this tent. And bandana guy, he walks out and... And he says, hey, man, if you're out here whacking off, that's not cool. And apparently he just goes wandering off deep into the woods to look for this dude, which also does not make sense. He finds his green glow stick. But why on earth? Like if you what you do in that situation, you stick your head out of the tent. Hey, go away. Quit jerking off while you're watching us. Right. And then back in the tent, you go. You don't put all of your clothes on and then just go. Because a glasses guy said that this weed farm was half a mile <laughs> away, Chad. In the woods at night. Yeah. So apparently he's just decided that maybe he's into being watched. So he's like, look, I'm going to make sure you're not watching wink wink <laughs> while also making sure that you're totally watching so i can pop he ends up finding not only the glow stick but he finds an ear with an earbud still stuck in it like glasses guy had i bet night ranger is still playing too Motorhead. Yeah, that song had played on. It was just some Night Ranger song that you never heard and couldn't possibly care about. That would have cost much less for the soundtrack. So Jason cut off this guy's ear and dangled it from a bush. Because then he looks over and sees the corpse of his buddy. And he's seen better days. He's all hatcheted up. Oh, yeah. And then Bandana Guy freaks out seeing his dead friend. And then we cut back to the campsite where Brunette Girl is in the tent. Right. Jason just splits open the tent, grabs her stuffs her into a sleeping bag, uh -huh. then ties it up with rope, hoists some rope over a branch, connects that rope down to a stake or maybe some complex pulley system, and then hangs her above the campfire, which is really roaring, Bo. I've never been mm -hmm. able to make a campfire roar like this, and dangles her there so she will roast alive? Yep. Why would Jason Voorhees do this? Uh, you know, just complicating the issue. Like, he's somebody that takes some pride in his work. It's a damn rare thing these days. <laughs> his pride problem is like he's the kind of guy when you interview him his problem is he cares too much chad we cut back and bandana guy he's running through the woods to get back to the campsite but jason has set up a booby trap in the form of a large bear trap and bandana guy runs directly into the middle of this thing how unfortunate for him and chomp go the blades on bandana guy's ankle and yeah. As he's laying there screaming on the ground, the sleeping bag melts open, and the brunette woman just falls to the ground looking like a roasted hot dog. Cut to, Chad. Mm-hmm. Redhead Whitney and her boyfriend, who are still dicking around in this cabin slash yes. counselor home slash Voorhees homestead. Right. Where they discover lights and candles, like full-on Christmas lights. Yes. And candles in this shrine, and there's a hole in the wall where you can see some hair coming out of it. <laughs> 
Sure. And the dude is like, I wonder what this is. Maybe a beaver or a gopher or something. Maybe there's a wig in there. You could put it on your mom. You know she's got cancer. You have found a straight up shrine. There is no question that's what this thing is. What are you doing? So he sticks his hand inside the wall and pulls out the desiccated head of Mama Voorhees. Uh huh. Then they hear something outside and this dum-dum goes to check it out and he leans down to look under the door to see like oh who's creeping around outside and then machetes just start coming up through the floor like whack-a-mole yes and so this guy is like bouncing around like oh yeah it's like when they throw the wife into the electrical room in cat's eye it's that kind of move or it's like when cowboys shoot at somebody's feet and tell them to dance like yeah. that's what he's doing on all fours he ends up getting stabbed in the foot and the leg and then his hand and then long hair guy gets pulled down into the tunnels that are beneath this house cabin and then redhead whitney she runs to save her life jason gives chase she runs past the camp crystal lake sign so this was the moment i was like wait that was a cabin that wasn't their house where were they living Maybe she worked at the camp? I don't know. So Redhead Whitney, she shows up at the campsite. She finds her brunette friend roasting by an open fire. And then Redhead Whitney goes over and she tries to remove the bear trap from Bandana Guy's leg. She struggles to do so because both those things are a pickle jar to open. One might even call them a bear (laughs) to get open. Jason then shows up running through the woods. He splits Bandana Guy's head down the middle. And it's an okay slasher death, but it's over way too soon and i think this may have been one of those cgi deaths because it did not feel as authentic as some of the stuff that you've seen in the original like one through four of this franchise if you watch the original friday the 13th and it's unfair in some ways to compare the two because it's it's such a different era and such a different method of filmmaking those tom savini gags really work You know, Mm -hmm. they're still effective and kind of gruesome and all that. This does not feel like it's got a lot of weight to it. He goes to kill Whitney and she screams and then we fade to black. And so it is implied that Redhead Whitney is dead. And then we get our title card of Friday the 13th. And it's... And you're like, we're 25 minutes into a barely 90 minute film. We've had four deaths, none of them very memorable. And then the movie fades in. We meet a whole new group of people that look to be in their early 30s, masquerading as people in their 20s, playing characters in their late teens. We are at the, quote, outpost. Dude, it looks like a Cracker Barrel without the restaurant attached. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we've got Trent the asshole, who is kind of the guy driving. His girlfriend, Jenna. Look, first off, Trent's the worst, okay? I don't even see what Jenna sees in him. He's just an asshole douchebag. Then we have a character named Chelsea, but there is also, Bo, a character named Bree. I didn't realize these were two separate characters for about another 15 minutes. I truly thought they were the same person. They look exactly the same. I think they wanted to cast one or the other. And then when they (laughs) showed up on the same day, they're like, oh, this is awkward, you know, and so we'll just make them two characters and split their lines. There's a there's a character named Chewy who is an Asian guy. Uh-huh. There's Lawrence the black guy, and then Nolan the jock. I normally don't recommend describing a character in a movie by their skin color or geographic origin or family lineage or I don't know, like their hobbies of sports or level of intelligence. But all of these characters are so poorly written. They have zero depth. It is almost impossible not to refer to them by physical attributes. I defy anyone to 
watch this movie, walk away and remember the names of any of the characters in this film. Yeah. Aside from Chewie, because his name sounds like Chewbacca. The only name of a Wookiee that I'm aware of. I, I think I actually do know the name of another Wookiee and that does not make me happy. But yeah, and you're right though, that every character in this movie is just their stereotype. You could have cast any actor in any of these roles and it wouldn't have mattered. Just spin the wheel and grab somebody from the CW or the WB or it did not matter. They are just, they're just, they're paper dolls. And so uh, some of them roll inside to, you know, pay for gas and get some supplies and so forth. And in Inside, they, we find Jared Padalecki from Supernatural, a show that went on for like 18 years when nobody was looking. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a show. I watched this with my wife and she pointed that out and I was like, okay. That's one of those secret CW shows that's been on for 20 years and made millions of dollars for this dude, Jared Padalecki. Clay uh, is his name in the movie. But yeah, that show went on forever and has conventions and you never heard of it. You know, like there's no reason for you to have ever heard of it. How ballsy is it to introduce the quote hero of our movie almost 30 minutes into this film? They pulled that off in Superman the movie when Christopher Reeve don't show up till the 30 minute mark. But that movie had two hours left to give us a Superman movie. You can't do that Friday the 13th remake. You got 60 minutes to wrap this thing up. And now we're meeting our main character. Also, just as daring, making him incredibly unlikable right off the bat because he's Standing at the counter, passing out flyers, are asking if he can hang a flyer about his missing sister, who happens to be redheaded Whitney, in the window. And the guy behind the counter is like, look, man, I don't run this place, and I can't give you permission to do this, and he's not really for that. So, sorry about your sister, but beat it. I think this guy not only does run the place, but he owns the place, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't like telling people no. Like, he hates to disappoint people, so he just made up the fact that somebody else is the owner and won't let him hang up the flyer. While this is going on, by the way chewy is buying a bunch of rubbers yeah that he says he's buying as an experiment but we never see that experiment conducted I, i'm glad i think it was how many times can chewy masturbate in the bathroom with rubbers on <laughs> he collects it and then he weighs it to see <laughs> oh that is an experiment <laughs> i thought it was going to have something to do with weed because that's the defining characteristic of chewy is that he enjoys marijuana <laughs> and drinking yeah and playing sports alone out in a tool shed but none of that ever matters it's a it's a real head scratcher but but Trent, the douchebag, asks Clay, like, hey, can you hurry up, man? We, we need to get out of here. He's more of a shitheel about it than that. He's like, hey, buddy, you've been up there yapping for a while about your missing, most likely dead sister enough, all right? We got to purchase gasoline and Funyuns and booze, rubbers for this guy to jerk off in and weigh. But here's the thing that makes Clay kind of a dick, because he already knows the answer to, can I hang a flyer in your store? Which is no. So he steps aside when he should just leave. Once Trent starts ringing up his stuff, Clay is like, I guess I'm the asshole. And you're like, what are you still doing in this store? Yeah, but then Trent says, you okay, bro? Everything good? Aside from all that sad shit about your dead, uh, I mean, missing sister, bro? By the way, that picture of her, she's hot. I'd smash that if she returns. Which she won't, because she's dead. Did I introduce you to my hot girlfriend, Jana, here? Why are you drooling looking at this guy, Clay? You know what? He's a simpleton. He's not cool like me. Let's all agree. Clay's a dick, right? But he is, because Clay's like... 
I'm not your bro. What are you still doing in this store? Why do you not leave? Why are you putting yourself in a situation to create this conflict? I just want to point out that not only do Bree and Chelsea, they're kind of one and the same. The character Clay and Trent, they're almost identical. Yeah. One is slightly taller than the other and one has slightly darker hair. They look like the same person. Uh, Also, Jenna looks like she stepped out of the pages of 100 people that look like Winona Ryder. (laughs) She also has been a big star on CW in a show that I know you don't know exists. Well, you you lost me at CW. She's been on that Flash show for, you know, the eight or nine years that that's been going on. Jenna, to her credit at least, apologizes like, hey, sorry, my boyfriend's kind of an asshole. Yeah, she's like, you look a lot like him, but you're taller and more handsome. Your name's Clay. I'll bet you would treat me better than Trent. He's a shit heel. And so off this SUV goes with all of our soon-to-be-dead kids. Were you bothered by the fact that Chewie, the Asian guy, has to sit in the back cargo hold? I get it that there are seven people in this large SUV, but come on, man. You're sticking a guy in the very back? I don't disagree with this. Chewie is an unpleasant human being, and the only reason any of them are bringing him along is because he also has the weed. Maybe him being squinched up back there is part of his masturbation science experiment. (laughs) You're probably right about that. I would love to see his science fair poster board up. How much does my semen weigh after being squinched up in the back of an SUV for six hours? By Chewy. As soon as they get to Trent's dad's cabin, he's just already opened up the box of condoms. It's like, all done. Experiment over. It turns out it was a rousing success. So the SUV drives past a sign that says, Welcome to Crystal Lake. So again, for that person who never watched any of the previous 12 movies, is like, oh, well, this is tied into maybe the first part of the movie we saw. Do you think somebody in the audience saw that sign and was like, uh-oh, I didn't see that coming, but these kids might be in a little bit of a pickle clay is riding on his motorcycle the wind blowing his long perfect brown bangs back and he gets pulled over by officer brack who says welcome back clay i know you don't think we're on your side looking for your dad i mean missing sister look we're not a bunch of dumb country hicks despite the fact that this shot is being filmed in front of a dilapidated barn with a rusty old tractor next to it we did <laughs> dozens of interviews most of them with the same two or three people and we did a county ride search of that area right over over there thousands of people disappear every year heck even in this state alone you know the state that we're in that i will not mention by name and there's no evidence that anything has happened to your sister she probably just ran off with her boyfriend and then clay's like my mother just died of cancer did i tell you that and i was like oh wait till jenna hears about this but you think she (laughs) had a reason to be in love with clay back at that dirty convenience store hearing that sad sack story about a missing sister you throw in a grieving death of his mother who died of cancer clay's all alone bo this has jenna written all over it she once told me she wanted to be a hospice nurse she did so we'll see what happens yeah i think she'd be great at it Clay also tells Officer Brack, my sister didn't show up for the funeral. She would never do that. You don't know her like I do. She's my sister. Officer Brack just puts a button on this conversation by by saying like, look, dude, she is not here. Try looking someplace else like all the other families of the people who went missing in this area are doing because they believe me. I don't know why you don't, Clay. Why are we talking about a mom with cancer? Like this isn't terms of endearment or steel magnolias or stepmom or sleepless in seattle or beaches i half expected the dead mom with cancer to show up at the end to help fight jason (laughs) which would have been great 
cut to the SUV showing up at this log cabin mansion in the woods. Everybody gets out. This was the moment that I realized that Chelsea and Brie, that they're two different characters because they get out and I was like, wait, what's going on? Brie, or maybe it's Chelsea, is given the job of saying, shit, I don't have a signal out here for my phone. And then Lawrence, the black guy says, shit, I need a cell phone to work. I'm starting a music label. And Brie or Chelsea says, is it a rap music label? And Lawrence says, why you got to go racial? Don't put me in a box because I'm black. I can't listen to Green Day. And then Brie or Chelsea says, I'm sorry. What kind of music is going to be your music label? And Lawrence says, it's rap. Everyone in this movie is a shithead, okay? Uh-huh. And we, the, just like we didn't need cancer in our movie, this movie doesn't need to have like undercurrents of racial tension. It's not doing your movie any favors to be like, oh, you're buying into the stereotype. Actually, it's just the stereotype. They explore this swank-ass cabin that Trent's dad owns. Mm-hmm. Trent shifts immediately into keep your feet off the furniture mode. Yeah. This is also another thing I don't need to be in this movie is our douchebag character also being the guy that's like hey everybody be sure you're putting coasters under your beers okay chewy the asian guy says this place is bigger than the dorm and i'm like dorm like dormitory at college or the boarding school where you work like you're 35 <laughs> man <laughs> chewy opens this briefcase with sculpted foam inside that's cradling this oversized purple bong mm, chewy really likes weed he's a professional he names this bong lucille and there's this whole bit where lawrence the black guy says oh my god is that lucille chewy says that's right it's me, Lawrence, and I know you've been cheating on me with a bowl. All right, that's somewhat of a joke. I can at least recognize that. Clay drives his motorcycle into the woods, and he comes across this house inhabited by what can only be described as an extreme hoarder. It looks like a junkyard with maybe a house on the fringe of it. He knocks on the screen door, nobody answers. Then a dog barks violently to give us a jump scare. Then some random old woman from the early 1970s shows up, and she's like, No, I ain't seen nobody. That girl in your flyer, she's dead. Most people around here, they die. They end up dead if they go missing. People around here won't be left alone. And so does he. And Clay's like, uh, who's he, ma'am? Who are you talking about, ma'am? Don't walk away. We don't know who this woman is. She doesn't matter. I don't know why this scene is here. She does not come back in the movie. It's just the colorful old character in town that seems to understand that they have a murderer living in their midst. Well, there's that old bastard from part one and two. Yeah, there's a blood curse. Yeah, he's riding his bike and being like maybe that's what this character is supposed to be but she's not goofy and wacky enough again the movie pulls its punches and when it does throw them they're so misguided they don't land on anything why not have that character in the movie yeah have old crazy ralph which is the character's name from the original (laughs) is crazy ralph who's just shouting and he's the local drunkard like everybody knows that he's wacky but he at least you know out of the mouth of the fool comes the truth sort of thing yeah Uh, that's very shakespearean in its way the fact that this isn't a direct sequel you could have done that i was surprised that they didn't pepper in more easter eggs in this film because of that to pay fan service they would have had to have cared about any of this for that to happen watching the original movies yeah put somebody in a wheelchair and have them get killed right have somebody be absolutely terrible like shelly from part three have the two characters that i got confused as one make them twins 
Mm-hmm. They're sisters from part four. Do that. Ugh. So back at the cabin, the kids are playing some drinking games and are filming it for some reason, which doesn't matter and doesn't come back at any point. I, I know. <laughs> While Trent, the douchebag, is just wandering around with paper towels and a spray bottle like, hey, guys, keep all this clean, all right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so Jenna decides that she's going to go for a hike and Trent kind of chases her down and it's like, hey, don't you want to go on a hike? And she's like, no, you're being an anal little weirdo about keeping everything clean. What did you think was going to happen when you brought a guy named Chewy to this cabin? Like the whole place <laughs> is going to reek of bong water in about 12 hours. <laughs> 12 minutes. <laughs> And he's like, well, I'll come on a hike with you. And she's like, oh, you like hikes now? And he's like, well, I don't not like hikes. And she's like, I'm out of here. You're a weirdo. All these people are weirdos. I don't know what I'm doing with any of you. I'm going to go find a clay. I mean, something to do. As she leaves, Trick goes, hey, can you grab me a beer or you're on your way we cut to clay riding up to this red barn that's filled with weapons and tools including a chipper shredder where one of the locals is chipping wood or something this introduces the single biggest cinematic crime of this movie (laughs) which is spoilers nobody ever goes into that wood chipper Mm -mm. what in the hell is wrong with these filmmakers (laughs) it is the single easiest layup of the movie is at some point somebody goes goes into that chip clay walks up behind this redneck and he startles him because the chipper shredder is running mm. and uh, this redneck turns around he's like dang stretch you're just close to me hitting the start button on the whoop ass machine he says it's mr garrett's property you're lucky that old fart didn't come out here and put buckshot in your ass someone's been stealing his kerosene plot point that'll explain some later in the movie <laughs> Clay says, oh, yeah, I'm looking for this girl. Have you seen her? No, I ain't seen her. You need to get on out of here. But hey, you want to buy some weed? It'll fuck your shit up. From this crop I just found, another plot point is Jason, uh, spoilers, Jason is stealing kerosene from these people and comes for revenge because they are apparently stealing his weed? Question mark? I didn't get that it was Jason's weed. But every time somebody tries to grab this pot, Jason shows up out of nowhere to be like, my marijuana. Maybe. Did you ever see Ted 2 when Ted and Mark Wahlberg and that whatever woman was cast in that movie where they find that field of weed? Probably. When they pull up on it and all three of them are awestruck and they play the music from Jurassic Park where <laughs> they first see the dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's the funniest thing for that whole movie. That and when Ted is on trial and he starts to to summon Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, and- that is. I do remember that. That is the single funniest thing in that movie. Bro, you don't know what you're dealing with there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there is something innately funny about thinking that Beetlejuice is real enough that in a worst case scenario, you can summon him. And also somebody being like, no, you have no idea what kind of hell you're going to unleash if you do that. It's like the somebody opening the lament configuration from Hellraiser. <laughs> I love it. It's very funny. After we establish this hillbilly and his wood chipper <laughs> that only matters tangentially to the story, which is, again, cinematic crap. Trent is cleaning up his SUV and Jenna shows up to give him a hard time about being all uptight. Mm -hmm. Then Nolan and either Chelsea or Bree decide that they're going to head out and go to the lake. Trent, to prove to Jenna that he is not uptight, is like, look, I'm going to give him the keys to my SUV. And he then kind of whispers to Nolan like, hey, take these gas cans and fill up the boat and also be sure you wash the boat and be sure you also don't take the boat out. Then there's a pointless 
bit where Nolan is like, okay, well, how do I get there? And Trent's like, well, you got to go left. And they were, you know what? Just put it in the GPS. Yeah. And you're like, what is the point of any of this? Because the GPS doesn't matter. And so why point out that the car has one? Like, I just come from a school of thinking where the lines in your movie should either be entertaining or should forward the plot. And a lot of this movie doesn't do either of those things. There's one part where Trent and Jenna are going to tag along with them, but Nolan is standing behind Bree or maybe it's Chelsea. And he does these miming sex motions where he's thrusting his hips and then he's using his hands to squeeze an invisible woman's breast in the air. It's what you would imagine a 12 year old boy would do if you asked him what sex looks like Mm -hmm. and Trent sees this guy Nolan do all this but more problematic Jenna sees all of this and I think she should really say something to Chelsea or Brie like you're about to get sexually assaulted but also I think that Chelsea and or Brie in this situation kind of understands that they're going to the lake to fuck I think everybody in this movie abides by the bros before hoes mantra women and men included what's so funny about watching this movie and again it's sort of living in that world where a movie like cabin in the woods exists where they explain all this behavior by pheromones being pumped into the cabin and that's what makes everybody so like you know horny and exert bad judgment and that at least explains it but this you know that is sort of knowing parody whereas this is just unwitting nonsense yeah again it's tough to watch it in a world where that movie exists and and so precisely deconstructs how dumb these movies are as soon as he gives the keys to nolan and chelsea or brie we see them in the suv and they are hauling ass down this country road like they're in hazard county the car is bouncing off the road and getting air between the tires and the ground and then nolan says to chelsea or brie what does it say about me that trent doesn't want me to drive his boat you know i'm totally driving his boat and then chelsea or brie says what does it say? It says you're a sociopath. And what does it say about me that I think it's so hot? And you're like, this is the kind of woman who writes letters to serial killers in prison. <laughs> right. Marries serial killers while they're in prison. <laughs> yeah. Clay shows up at the lake house. Yeah. Ding dong. <laughs> Jenna shows up. Oh, oh, my stars and garters. It's, it's Clay. From- oh, come right in. Yeah. <laughs> Have you found your sister? Would you like to go look for her? I'll go with you. Mm. Chelsea or Brie, whichever one is in the suv with nolan Uh has the camera and as soon as clay walks in she's like oh i gotta get a shot of this Mm -hmm. and trent (laughs) comes around the corner and is like oh look who's here the guy almost got a fight with at that cracker barrel (laughs) it's the taller handsomer version of me well aren't you a piece of shit you done passing out flyers of your dead missing sister well toodaloo be gone with you handsomer taller version of me right it's just like hey you're not welcome here and just like okay i'll walk him out it's like well that was quick clay says i'm gonna go to the other side of the lake and jenna's like i'll go with you i was just gonna go to the other side of the lake you want some company they're off to go to the other side of the lake meanwhile while back at the bar that we saw earlier with the hillbilly who had the one line in this movie that makes me laugh about starting the whoop ass machine the hillbilly <laughs> shows back up at this bar with a sack of pilfered weed lights up a joint as he's checking out a hustler yes. which he licks like he's performing cunnilingus on this magazine uh, it's awkward and he's talking to it he's like you like it don't you you like it when i lick it like uh, that. You're like, it's disgusting he hears something moving above in the loft of this barn Uh 
So he heads up there and grabs a croquet mallet to take care of business with whatever is up there. Dude, this barn loft is full of like old bikes and sewing machines, Christmas decorations and mannequins. It looks like the attic at the Griswold's house. Somebody bought everything at an estate sale and put it in the loft of this barn, including a bunch of mannequins with creepy drop cloths pulled over them he walks up to one of those and you think it's like it's like oh it's jason hiding under a sheet to get him <laughs> this redneck yanks off the cloth and he's like oh it's just you nina you sure look sexy you remember when you took my virginity and I'm like look, let's be honest nina the mannequin took nothing from you sir <laughs> they yeah. was willingly given yeah <laughs> i'm not sure that inanimate objects are capable of being victims of sexual assault but if they are nina is certainly one of them this whole character is one of the most sexually reprehensible individuals we have ever covered on this show <laughs> he is licking <laughs> porno mags fucking mannequins left and right wistfully nostalgic about it <laughs> i haven't seen a character this like sexually frustrated since the movie <laughs> Maniac. It is insane. But yeah, so while he's groping this mannequin, Jason appears behind him. Yeah. And grabs him. And this hellbilly reaches up and tears the sack off of Jason's head, revealing his distorted face. But we don't get to see it. Yeah, it's a real quick glimpse. And then Jason slices this guy's throat mm -hmm. and starts looking around for his sack and finds it all ripped up, which is torn. So he ends up grabbing a hockey mask that is suitably weathered yeah. so that we're kind of getting that part three, here's the origin of Jason's mask kind of thing he could have just as easily put on like some sort of santa claus disguise that was up there or some <laughs> right. mardi gras mask or something groucho nose and glasses <laughs> or something which would have been more fun <laughs> so nolan and chelsea or brie are at the dock and he talks her into taking the boat out just to remind us that these are characters in the movie and then we go back to jenna and clay who are strolling through the woods while clay is giving her the perfect Jenna story. You know, my sister and I weren't as close as we would like. We, we kind of drifted apart oh. and that's my fault. But oh, yeah. six months ago we uh -huh. were chatting and oh, oh. she said that she, yeah. I should come see mom, but I, I should go with you. Then I just never showed up. We could probably go there together right now. And then she disappeared and I don't know what happened to my oh. sister, Whitney. Oh. There's a David's bridal on the way there. I'm sure we could probably stop off there and take a look at dresses or something if you wanted to. Oh, Hey, look at this. It's what? a busted GPS device. Oh my God. You're getting down on one knee. What's oh my God. Is this happening? Is a, Oh, never mind. <laughs> so. Meanwhile, come back to Nolan and Chelsea Arbery, who is now skiing naked behind the boat. Yeah. And the one thing I could say for this scene is that at least there's a cool hive song playing called Tick, 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 Boom, which is a song I enjoy. That's just, again, to remind us that this is a thing that is happening in the movie. And then we cut back to the house. The kids, minus Jenna, Nolan, and Chelsea or Bree, are playing beer pong. Yeah. And Trent loses along with Chelsea or Bree. It's like, Chelsea or Bree, I lost. So now you have to drink beer out of Chewy's shoe. Yeah. What? 
what? This is vile. And then Chewie, because the uh, losing opponents refuse to do it, he just slugs beer from his own disgusting chew. Chewie needs to go to a meeting, man. <laughs> Everybody likes their own brand, man. Gross. First off, drinking games are a waste of time. Just drink your alcohol. You don't need a game to do it. <laughs> like, I don't play eating games. Just eat your food and then play a game. I don't need to throw a ping pong ball in a cup. It's like uh, people who only drink at St. Patrick's Day events and yeah. drink to excess. So you're like, man, you are an amateur at best. Chewy should know better. Should be over there with his bong. Later, we just see him pouring bottles of Maker's Mark down his throat. Chewie's, he's a mess. There's something going on at home that he's trying to avoid. <laughs> and unfortunately, this movie doesn't ever get into what Chewie is running from. But I spoilers, it's himself. Back at the lake, we have more topless wakeboarding or water skiing. And Chelsea Brie wipes out and she falls in the water. Then Nolan the jock, he slows down the boat that he shouldn't be driving. And then out of nowhere, Bo, an arrow just goes through his head. Mm -hmm. He slumps over the boat. It accelerates forward. And our topless wakeboarder, whose name doesn't matter, gets smacked in the head. But not after we get a shot from the movie Jaws from beneath the water, where we see her legs splooshing, splooshing underneath while her breasts float up above and her head's pretty damaged here but not for long she looks over to the shore where she sees jason with his handy bow and arrow uh -huh. one of the classic weapons in the jason arsenal well known as a famous <laughs> archer is jason Voorhees. there's katniss from the hunger games right there's, robin hood uh, luke duke from the Dukes of Hazard and Jason Voorhees. At best, the only thing I can think of that's analogous to the original films is his harpoon gun. Why give him this? I, I don't Is know. it because I'm... they wanted to have somebody topless wakeboard behind a boat? Probably. The actress who plays Chelsea Abri in this scene, she had never wakeboarded before. So they gave her like a week to learn to wakeboard. And uh, I read a quote from her that said, it wasn't so hard to learn to wakeboard, you know, in seven days. The hardest part was doing it topless in front of other people people and i'm like that sounds right right again it doesn't make sense why this person is doing it in this movie and what i mean i don't and i don't mean the character i mean the actress mm -hmm. if they were like you need to wakeboard topless like why it adds nothing other than gratuitous nudity into this film how about this just wakeboard naked right just totally nude let your poop poot and your coot shoot just shine for all the world to see i always feel bad for young actors like this that are like man this is a big studio movie because it was it was you know this was a, yeah. a movie with a real budget and that kind of thing it's like this is my big break if you want to part you're gonna have to wakeboard with your girls out <laughs> that's what the people want to see my people uh, i mean me all right get in the water beep oh, beep, beep 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 hi hi mom yeah it, it's me huh what yeah i i i got a part in in <gasps> a big movie <gasps> oh my gosh congratulations what, what are you gonna be in little girl uh, uh friday the 13th they're you know that old movie they're they're bringing that back they're gonna make a new one and uh, i don't like scary movies you know that but i'm so yeah. proud of you baby girl uh, are you probably... playing the lead character are you the main the main girl who lives to the end and survives no nah, i i'm i'm playing one of the other girl i play one of the people who gets killed i get to get killed on screen it's kind of fun oh my goodness oh my goodness my baby girl's gonna be in a movie what's your character's name uh it's either chelsea or brie i'm not really sure i can't oh. i can't remember <laughs> Um, so but also, how also, does your character get killed? Uh, oh, uh, it's pretty good. It's, it's one of the more memorable uh, kills in the in the whole movie. It's uh, through through a dock uh, with the machete. You know, classic Jason Voorhees machete. Um, but uh, hey, I just want to call and say, uh, you know, it's good news. And also, uh, please don't let Dad ever go see this movie. <laughs> 
or any of his friends. Yeah. Or any of our uncles. Or you. Or anyone in our family. You don't Her dad's friends definitely <laughs> saw this movie. <laughs> hey, hey, Barry. Did you see that new Friday the 13th? Yeah, I know. I know, Sam. Oh, your, your daughter's looking pretty good in that. Oh, my God. Keep your eyes off my daughter. Why do I have such disgusting friends? That's the thing that runs through my head is the real world consequence of that and how sad it must be. But I, I guess you just don't care. Anyway, she does get killed. She she swims over to the boat dock topless and suddenly her head is miraculously no longer bleeding. Yeah. And she swims under the dock and Jason comes out on the dock, which my thought is just swim away from Jason. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Why are you hiding underneath where he is? And then he. He takes his machete and just sticks it through the boards of the dock as though they're made of paper or butter, stabs her in the head, raises her up so we get one final shot of her naked breast, bonks her head on the top of the dock, and then shish kebabs her off so that she floats off topless in the water. I like a mean-spirited horror movie, and there's something pretty mean-spirited about him like trying to pull his machete out and bringing her up with it and her hitting the underside of the dock to kind of pull it free. What I really wish is if when he stabbed her in the head with a machete if one mm-hmm. of her eyes had gone all higgledy-piggledy like Carrie Russell in Mission Impossible 3. Right. That really would have done it for me. It, but it, at the end of the day, I still think this is the best kill of the movie because it's at least kind of memorable. Yeah, it's the only one I really remember. All the rest of it is pretty forgettable kind of stuff. Why is he killing these people, Bo? They're not at the camp. They're not on his territory. They didn't steal weed from him. Yeah, no. it's just for goofs. Maybe these two make sense because they were at the camp. They're at they're at Crystal Lake. So day has now turned to night and Clay and Jenna the soon-to-be Mrs. Clay. They (laughs) walk into the room of the cabin that was previously visited by Whitney the Redhead, you know, his sister and her long-haired boyfriend. And then they they leave the cabin after exploring it for a moment, and they see that someone's coming. It's Jason. And so they hide under some canoes. And then Jason has a body thrown over his shoulder, and he's trump, trump, trunking along. And then Jason looks down on the ground, and he sees the backpack that Clay had, and he's sort of erroneously left it out and jason's like what is this so he runs over flips on an electrical breaker turning on all manner of floodlights around camp crystal lake which like did he install these i I assume so which means that he either had to go to a hardware store or a trade school (laughs) jason then gets very angry and he starts banging around some canoes but as soon as his anger peaks it just falls off so he grabs his sack and goes back to his work like santa claus and then clay and jenna they sneak up a bit and then like towards the camp then they think better of it and they run off down this surprisingly well-lit path and as they run they hit a tripwire that dingle dangles a little bell down in the caverns beneath this house cut to whitney the redhead who is still alive Bo, and mm-hmm. she's screaming for help few questions what is she eating or drinking where does she go poopies and peepees and how badly does she stink in order mostly rats her own pee in the corner did jason make these tunnels or were they in place when the summer camp was built because either way it's problematic it's gotta be that he did it because there's all these hidey holes into buses that have turned over and whatnot that we'll see later it's head scratching man like it is a thing that you do not need for this movie you are overcomplicating the jason backstory where he is possibly a weed farmer definitely stealing kerosene <laughs> to power his empire that he has created at camp crystal lake that everyone in town just turns a blind eye to to 
despite the fact that he's a real drain on their energy infrastructure. But the weed that he grows is fantastic. Is he selling the weed to get the money to pay for the excavation of these tunnels <laughs> and these security systems and the lights? It just doesn't make any sense because otherwise it means that he is making his own copper wire. You don't need any of this. Why are you doing any of this? All you need is for him to show up murder people and that's it jason gets down in the tunnels and he walks past whitney and he drops the backpack that he found next to her she opens it up and finds a stack of flyers with her face on it and she says it's clay my brother and then she finds this busted gps device which was a clue that clay found earlier when jenna got so excited that he was going to propose to her but didn't and then she reaches inside this gps device she breaks it apart pulls out a like thin piece of metal and starts to masterfully pick the lock on the shackles or around her wrists uh she learned that from jason too he knows how to pick a lot when she's trying to free herself from these chains jason pops up and uh -huh. starts to choke her but then he gets distracted by the locket which begs the question chad is he sophisticated enough to set up a generator and electrical system as well as this elaborate system of traps but can't figure out that this person is not his mother short answer yes Long answer, yes. Whatever you say, bad movie. And when he sees the picture, it's a real, like, your mom's Martha? My mom's Martha. Like, okay. It's this amulet that prevents him from murdering this woman. Anyway, he goes in pursuit of Clay and Jenna. Back at the cabin, we get another Cabin in the Woods moment where Chelsea or Bree, whichever one is not dead yet, yes. is doing a sexy dance while Lawrence and Chewie just watch and rub themselves through their clothes. Yeah. And Trent shows up and is like, where the hell is stupid Jenna? Chelsea or Bree is like, hey, don't worry about her. Let's just go to uh, upstairs so that you can show me uh, your bedroom. Do you have a bedroom in this place? How about you give me a tour of that? About this time, Chewie gets up, trips and falls and breaks a table because he is drunk and high and horny and, and dehydrated from all of his masturbation experimentation. And then Chewie's like, don't worry, your dad's got this awesome set of tools. I can totally fix it. So he wanders off to this tool shed that's like down the path around the corner to go get tools to fix his table he broke. Chewie makes his way to the shed. He's looking for the tools, but surprises of surprises, he finds a liquor cabinet and just starts guzzling more booze. I mean, it's a real leaving Las Vegas style <laughs> of alcohol consumption. This man is drinking to kill himself. <laughs> Lean into the bar <laughs> in Vino Veritas. <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, he opens it up and it's just like, kerkuk. I hadn't really put a fine point on the fact that Chewie is clearly in the grip of addiction. <laughs> but it's true. You know, it's like they say, first the man takes the bottle, then the bottle takes the man. And we are at that stage with Chewie. We cut upstairs to see Bree or Chelsea and Trent fucking, at which point the script really hits its high notes, I think, in terms of eloquency, as he tells her that her tits are stupendous <laughs> there's also a moment where she's riding him and he is talking about how she has perfect nipple placement those are two things that you say to a stripper to one make her think you're french and two, make her think you're a doctor God, i hate this movie so much it's just so stupid and, and, and the thing is it's not that other friday the 13th movies aren't dumb but this just seems cynically stupid where it's like just shove it out the door nobody yeah. expects this to be good if you don't even try of course 
not. It's why the, the fourth one is so fucking good is that everyone seems to actually care about what's happening. Yeah. And you have, you know, crazy Chris McGlover. Where's the corkscrew? Back and doing his crazy dances and stuff. Like, it's got things about the movie that are fun and interesting and weird. And then, well, here's what this movie replaces that with Lawrence, the black guy, is smoking weed from this bong and then decides to just flip through a Bass Pro Shop Christmas catalog to find something to which he can masturbate in the main room. And he settles on a photo of a mom drinking hot chocolate wearing a Schmidt's fine knit mock sweater. I mean, He's just jerking off in the living room of this cabin. With Chewie bound to come back any second. Or Trent and Chelsea or Bree coming down. Like, he's just going to be sitting there jacking off. And this dude's like, Trent, if Trent comes down and sees this, he's going to explode. Yeah. I don't care how much marijuana you have imbibed. It doesn't reduce your inhibitions to the point that you're like, you know what? I'm just going to jack off anywhere. Or if that's already in you, you've got demons that you need to <laughs> confront. Yeah. Speaking of Beetlejuice, got demons running through me. <laughs> anyway, so Jenna and Clay bust in to stop Lawrence from jerking off. Yeah. Hobby time's over, buddy. Yeah, and they're like, hey, we need a phone because it turns out that there's some kind of crazy killer on the loose. Now, do they know that he's a killer? Or, and that's based on the big sack he had over his shoulder. Well, when he dropped the body in front of them, they saw it was a decapitated corpse. Oh, okay, okay. Who right, who right. was decapitated? I don't know. Right. Nobody that we saw, but whatever. So Clay calls the cops while Jenna goes upstairs to bang on the, the bedroom door where Trent and Chelsea Arbery are doing the devil's business right we cut back down to chewy who is playing with a basketball in the shed and then knocks over uh, he knocks himself in the head with the basketball because he's drunk and high and ends up knocking over a bunch of hockey equipment that is here on this summer home he comments how the hockey stick is curved like his penis yeah uh again this script doing wonders for the state of american art and while he's screwing around with that he ends up busting a light because he's drunk and high <laughs> and jason appears behind him he turns around sees jason with the hockey mask and says are you looking for this stick to complete your outfit because he's wearing a hockey mask. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> so Jason starts slamming around some. And then Chewie ends up grabbing a screwdriver that he's going to stab him with. But then Jason just turns it around and then pushes it through Chewie's throat, which is a pretty lame kill. Yeah, and it's probably the most graphic and prolonged death. Like he kind of sticks it in there and you get a little... Yeah, we get a little bit of POV for approaching the house where we see Bree and Trent still at it while Jason... Jenna is banging on the door like, hey, open up in there. You yeah. take it all day. He comes out fully dressed and he just starts screaming at Jenna. What are you doing up with Clay back in my house? Were you two out fucking in the woods? You know, that's why I had sex with Chelsea or maybe Bree. It's your fault, Jenna. Honestly, I don't know how I can forgive you for making me do such a terrible thing. <laughs> you two get the fuck out of my mansion cabin. And then the lights go out. <gasps> the phone is now dead. When Jenna stands up to be like, hey, business is afoot. Trent is like, well, you need to get out out of here with clay too and lawrence then out of nowhere decides hey i'm gonna go check on chewy in the shed even though you've told me there's a killer out there but i've got this walk that <laughs> my trusty walk i'm gonna use as a shield and this fire poker as his sword yeah which is probably the most high thing i've seen in a movie in a while 
Right. Like the fact that he didn't put a pot to boil water in as a helmet on his head (laughs) is a real missed opportunity. (laughs) He gets down to the shed and he's creeping around. He creepily opens the freezer expecting to find a body or something. But there's nothing in there. Surprise, surprise. Until Chewie's body falls from the rafters. So Jason just tucked him up in the rafters of this shed. Jason must be very strong to lift that much dead weight above his head. That's impressive. Well, he gets a workout digging through all the rock under this camp good point good you know point. he's he's got a miner's body <laughs> and so jason shows up and they scrap a little bit but lawrence manages to cut his leg and runs off at which point jason calls this axe this two-handed axe through the air which lands squarely yeah. in lawrence's back how he didn't have a ribbon for axe throwing is also yeah a he's, he's good with it pretty much anything he should have had a ribbon for tunnel digging axe throwing <laughs> it's a real something so inside the cabin we hear lawrence begging for help and clay is like no one could go out there because they're using him as bait you dum-dums Trent, our asshole, he jumps in and he says, how do you know that? Which for the first time in this movie, I agree with Trent. (laughs) Apparently that's not what's happening because Jason just picks Lawrence up, turns him around and throws him down onto the axe or shoving the the blade of the axe fully through his chest and thus killing him. He's not bait. Well, at least not for people. (laughs) Maybe for rabbits or vultures. Beetles. (laughs) Flies. And inside, all the kids are freaking out. Well, (laughs) you know. (laughs) What, they just see the stock market and they saw their 401ks (laughs) drop by 8%? (laughs) (laughs) So, Trent rushes upstairs because there's a gun hidden up there. And then Jason's on top of the house. Like the fucking fiddler on the roof, this guy has found his way onto the the, the rooftop. I thought he was like that magical horse in the Lone Ranger. How'd you get up there so fast something wrong with that jason chelsea or brie <laughs> follows trent upstairs and sees that one of the windows is open and starts creeping around just looking for a murderer sure like you do opens up a shower curtain which reveals that there's nothing in the bathtub but surprise surprise jason is behind her who grabs her cups a hand over her mouth so that she doesn't make a sound then shoves her on some antlers killing her like she's a vampire from the lost boys it's definitely got hints of michael myers hanging that girl on the wall hook or leatherface strapping that girl on the wall yeah lots of iconic bad guys just hanging women on wall hooks good artist copy great artist steal you're uh, right then trent hears something like huh was that some, a body hitting my antlers bang bang <laughs> he's running around like yosemite sam just firing <laughs> yeah. bullets off indiscriminately we also see that there are some blue lights flashing as a cop shows up oh good the police are here right <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> officer brack as it turns out shows up uh at, at this house while jenna and clay are waiting inside and immediately jason just takes some long pointy thing and just it's uh lawrence's fire poker is that yeah. what it is yeah it just stabs him to the door so why did we even bother to call this cop could they have just been like the phone lines are <laughs> Also, how is it not raining and lightning at this point? We'll get there. But, you know, here's an interesting thing about the the earlier films is that the storm coming in is associated with Jason showing up like this force of nature showing right. up. This movie, again, remembers that at the very end. Oh, right. It's supposed to be raining. Oh, shit. We ordered that rain machine. <laughs> right. 
Oh, it's going to be delayed. All right, we'll just start filming. It doesn't matter because nothing matters. Trent, our shit bag, he goes upstairs. Again, just shooting bullets left and right. He opens the bathroom door and finds Chelsea or Bree dead on the floor. And then Trent, the asshole, Jenna and Clay, they all run downstairs. They go outside and here they push aside the corpse of the cop who showed up. And then Trent hops in the police car and he says, Jenna, let's get out of here. And then at this exact moment, Chelsea or Bree's body comes flying through the air, crashes down on the windshield of this police car. Welcome to the party, pal. Trent lets out a scream that it sounded like Daniel Stern when that tarantula was on his face in Home Alone. It is this high-pitched howl of fear. It's a Ned Flanders-esque scream of terror. But he runs off, ends up dropping his gun in some water, which he looks for for about 12 seconds, and then he's like, fuck it, and then just keeps going. Flags down this truck on the local highway, which I guess we're that close to the road. Why Jenna and Clay don't just do the same is a question mark, but whatever. The truck, it's a a tow truck. Uh Uh-huh. And it slows down real creepy-like. And you're like, who's in this truck? Is that Jason? Did he learn to drive? Totally possible in the context of this movie where Jason is doing construction work. He rebuilds starter motor engines as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this mystery driver that you're like, who is this? Gives a thumbs up. And then Trent, our asshole, goes over that he's going to hitch a ride with this guy. And then Jason is suddenly there, picks up Trent the asshole, and just impales him his body on these three rocks. Rods that are sticking out of the back of this tow truck. And then the mystery driver just drives off. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what happened to that guy when he got home? (laughs) I I think he knew there was a body on the back. And he was like, I got to take this to the sheriff. Oh, he's been killed too. I think he pulled around the corner, pulled off the body, chunked it in a dish, got to his house, hosed it off real good. Done and done. It could have been some of them wrong turn hillbillies because they had a truck. So maybe maybe. they were just like, oh, we got some good eats. Thanks, Jason. About this time, you're thinking we only have two people left in our movie. It's almost over. But sorry to bring it up. We've got to go save Whitney the Redhead, who's in the tunnels under Camp Crystal Lake. So Clay and Jenna, they make their way back to the camp. Faintly, they can hear Whitney the Redhead screaming. Again, why would they go back to the camp? And also, they don't know she's down there. That's right. But we've got to go save her. They go back to the camp, and and they and that's where Clay hears something. And yeah. he's like, oh, I think that's my sister screaming. And <laughs> Jen is like, what? Your plan of action. Uh, we have two courses. One, run away in the woods. I hear there's a road nearby. Or two, crawl down into these creepy hand-dug tunnels to look for what might be your sister right in the lair of a person who dug these tunnels so they know all the ins and outs and we've never right. been here before so so they go in the tunnels whether they'll go as Daiko, <laughs> and so jenna uh hops down with him jason of course arrives home while clay is downstairs breaking whitney's chains then they get her free and then they all just run off as jason returns home is like boy you would not believe the day that i've had mom 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 <laughs> and then notices that Whitney is gone, grabs his machete, and gives chase. They find a ladder that leads up to topside. The, Whitney goes first. Okay. And then while he's getting Jenna to go up or kind of go through this little crawl space to get to this ladder, Jason shows up. And sure enough, just stabs Jenna through the gut. That was a pretty good twist. I did not see Jenna getting killed in this movie. I thought she was going to make it to the end. Yeah, I agree. Credit where it's due. Did not see that coming. But uh, yeah, so she gets it. 
And so now Clay and Whitney are running through these tunnels. They knock over uh, a lantern, which starts a fire in the tunnels. Where did he get kerosene to start this fire, Bo? Oh, could it have been from the barn where we're going to end up in about 90 seconds? We're so close to this being over. This is sub 10 minutes before all of this is done. We can do it in two. Yeah, so Clay and Whitney find their way up this ladder, which exits through a school bus. Somehow Jason has gotten out ahead of them. And so when Clay gets out, he's immediately grabbed by Jason, who bangs his head through some of the windows of the school bus, knocking him out. But he doesn't kill him because we need him for the end of this movie. Yep. And Whitney is hiding in the bus as Jason starts uh, hunting around for her. And then she kicks him in the face from some hidey hole. She goes, fuck you. As the rain finally starts because the rain machine has shown up in the last three minutes of the movie. They're Foley artists where there's a big piece of sheet metal. <laughs> right. So that starts coming down as Whitney and Clay escape and they make it to the barn suggesting, oh my goodness, somebody's finally going to go in this wood chipper. Someone's going in this chipper shredder, bro. That's what I'm thinking. But instead, the our brother and sister are hiding inside while Clay limps around looking for Jason. He grabs a scythe uh-huh. and then Jason comes through the window to grab him. He comes through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. Credit where it's due. Jason is super physical and imposing in this movie. Yes, I would agree with that. Jason and Clay scrap a little bit. And during this process, the button on the wood chipper gets hit. Here we go. Start it up, yeah. And so Jason starts to push Clay's head into the wood chipper. It's like, oh, here we yes, go, here yes, we go. Yes, yes. And then Whitney goes, Jason, huh? It's me, huh? your mother, huh? which you know because here's this locket. Uh-huh. So Jason who is capable of mass construction. Complex electrical work. <laughs> right. Is like, Mom? <laughs> and let's go of Clay. <laughs> so she's telling him because she somehow knows the backstory as told by Glasses Guy at the beginning. While he is hypnotized by Whitney and the locket, Clay hits him with a bear trap and Whitney tosses the chain into the wood chipper dragging him towards it. it's like oh my god here we go here we go he's going in the wood chipper he's going yes. in the wood chipper come on and but also you're like if he goes in the wood chipper how do they make a sequel right so whitney grabs the the machete and says say hi to mommy jason yep in hell uh-oh and stabs him sending him closer to the wood chipper and chad you know who finally goes in this wood chipper who nobody <laughs> It just seemingly <laughs> chokes him to death, question mark. Yep. And so daylight comes to Camp Crystal Lake. Sun comes up. It's a new day, Bo. And rather than, I don't know, call the police or any kind of authority, the brother and sister just drag his body from the wood chipper to the lake where they toss it in. Yes. Why? Where are the police? Where is anybody of authority that might say like, hey, we've been looking for this guy who presumably has killed a bunch of people who have gone missing. Yes. And maybe we can search the grounds a la Jeffrey Dahmer's house Mm -hmm. to see if we can find some of these bodies. Don't do none of that. Yeah, just shove it in the lake. And Whitney also tosses behind the body the locket. Yeah. And so we see the mask settle to the lake floor, the hockey mask, as well as the locket. As we're just kind of standing there looking forlorn, surprise, surprise, up pops Jason, grabs Whitney, end of movie. It's so bad. Yeah. You know, six minutes of credits. How would you have made this movie better? 
use the template set forward by the yeah. original films. Like, I don't think the impulse to kind of condense a couple of the movies is, is necessarily wrong, but like, like we were talking about at the beginning, you don't start with two false endings. You have your counselors who are, Hey, we're going to set up camp crystal Lake again. Cause that's how all of these movies start. Yeah. Oh, by the way, as we're setting things up, let's tell the story of Jason Voorhees and his mother. And so you can tell all the story there then as night falls the storm rolls in so that you kind of keep with that theme of jason is this force of nature that shows up and death comes for us all that kind of thing and then you just do a good slasher movie where you have a imposing like i think Derek mears is great for the role and have him murder a bunch of teens slash middle-aged people and just make it kind of interesting, like set up your final girl and all that stuff. Like, don't reinvent the wheel. Don't try to do something. If they made nine of these or ten of these movies for a reason. It's because people like a good slasher when it's done well. I don't even have a problem with the final girl looking like the mom. I think you almost, mm-hmm. you could start the movie with the second batch of, or just do what you said. Start it with the camps reopening. Here's the legend. Oh, that's not real. You know, here's what's going on. Then it turns out it is real. And you have them discover, oh, hey, you redhead Whitney, you look like this person on this shrine. And, you know, she's able to kind of use it. And that's even a callback to final chapter when Mm -hmm. Corey Feldman comes down with his head shaved, looking like Jason. Like you could do all of that. When I saw the Rocky Balboa, which was what, Mm -hmm. Rocky 6? I do believe yeah, yeah. in watching that movie. That was a movie that I felt like Sylvester Stallone just watched the first five and made a list of here's everything that works. Here's everything that doesn't work. on the list of things that don't work. I'm going to throw that away. Now I'm going to do all of the things that do work. And that's your movie. Yeah. And as a Rocky movie, I think Rocky Balboa is a very well done Rocky six. Absolutely. You can't say that about too many part sixes of a franchise. And that's what I think that they just missed on this. It just seemed that it was all like such a moving target of what they were trying to to do is like you're overthinking this like you said follow the template and it all comes together make the characters that you're going to kill give them more like if you're going to make them stereotypes make them really goofy stereotypes you know right and then when you kill them kill them in fun and interesting and strange ways but they just they just didn't do any of that with this set up the kills like show the wood chipper or whatever yeah so that as an audience member you're like oh somebody's going in that thing yeah Uh, it's gonna be pretty good that's a harpoon gun like from the original like oh that that's a throw and have somebody get shot in the eye you know have it go through their head and into somebody else's eye like just up the ante and i wonder with all of the legal troubles of this franchise what will come of it because as you are much more aware than i just the state of horror films and the means through which to tell a story i could see something like this coming out as part of like a long-form streaming service that could be interesting and told over multiple decades who knows yeah there is certainly room for a good reboot of friday the 13th there i mean there have been great reboots of horror films you know i mean the Look, horror movies, uh, along with every other kind of movie, are just littered with great examples of how you do a remake right. This is one of those cases where simple is better. Yeah. Just don't sit down at the drawing board and think, how do we make Friday the 13th 
in a way that will appeal to Gen Z. Yeah. Just be like, how do we make a good Friday the 13th movie? And the audience will find that because it turns out doesn't matter what era like that's Scream 5 or whatever just came out and you know it didn't do gangbusters but it did reasonably well and it's because people will still go see a slasher movie like you were talking about in the intro with the box office of this thing people turned out the opening weekend but as soon as people saw what it was and word of mouth and the reviews trickled in people stayed away in droves because they got wind of the fact that it was kind of shitty you know both I was wondering if you might have a movie you would want to review on the next episode of this season's theme deja ooh, season 22 but what do we got coming up for episode three look if we're gonna talk slashers uh <laughs> let's talk about one of the like most influential slashers of all time and yes. in hillbillies we got some of that uh we got uh, uh unusual methods of murder a la a chainsaw and uh chad uh, one of the best horror movies of all time is uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Certainly. And just like Friday the 13th, somebody thought, hey, I think we could do that again, but not better, just newer. And that led to yet another Platinum Dooms film. Oh. Uh, a remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But here's the thing that's going to be a lot of fun. Let's hear it. Is we're going to talk about the original. We're going to take a look at this uh, this new version of it and try to figure out how things went wrong. Spoilers, uh, it's because nobody gave a shit either. A lot like what happened with this one. <laughs> yeah, you might sense a theme uh, for this season above and beyond. Right. Hey, it's horror remakes. It's like, uh, people just didn't give a shit about making it good. They just wanted to make it, period. I will tell you, listeners... You are going to be treated to the amazing and insane story of the making of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is something that if you don't know, if it, if that is not in your cinematic vocabulary of how this crazy movie got made in the first place, you're going to love it. It's bananas. All right. So come back and see us in two weeks time. As always, like, rate, review. You can email us at picksixmovies at gmail.com. You can find us floating around on social media here and there. Bo, any final thoughts that you have on Friday the 13th, the remake? Ah, I was going to go with Clay, but then Jason stabbed me. Does that mean he likes me? Maybe, the, maybe that's who I should be with. Jason, I'm not your mom, <laughs> but I could be your mommy wife. <laughs> we'll see you in two weeks time, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>